Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, my business partner, the the handsome, the I don't know. You know, what I do feel- I owe you? <laughs> what well, do you owe me? What have you done? What have you broken, Joshua? Just tell me the truth. What have you broken? I feel as if I won't be mad. I won't I, be. Just need the truth. I feel as if every time we start this, you know, I have to introduce you in some new way that that's fun and different and and exciting. And I just I hit a wall. I hit handsome, and I said, "How do you get better than that?" He's a handsome man. It's never, never. You've peaked. You've you've troughed for years, but you finally peaked. <laughs> it doesn't take me long to peak, if we're being honest here. And uh, I was spelling it with two e's. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jason, I I've been on the road for a week, and and this is the first yeah. time. Actually, I've been on the road for a week, but then I was on the road for about five days before this week. And I know we saw each other one time in the middle of that, but I it really feels as if it feels as if it's been forever since we've we've hung out and uh, <laughs> seen one another's faces and and had a conversation. So welcome back. It's I'm, good to hang. I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I fulfilling the Meg Ryan role here or the Tom Hanks role here? You've got mail. Is it? Did I do the right one? I was thinking Sleepless in Seattle, but I always think Sleepless in Seattle, to be honest with you. I, I don't remember either of those movies. Oh, oh, Sleepless in Seattle, so good. We just I just talked to uh, Greg Schwartz about this on Friday. There are not not this movie, but the idea that, and and we all know this, there are movies that if you pass by them on the TV, mm-hmm. you will stop. Yeah. And you will watch yeah. the whole thing. No matter where it is in the movie, you will do that. So I married an axe murderer. Oh, yeah. Is one yeah. of mine, yep. right? Yeah. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle is one of mine. Mm-hmm. I absolutely adore that movie. So I'm with you on So I Married an Axe Murderer. And, and I mm-hmm. think that I would be with you on When Harry Met Sally. That's another one of mine. Yep, that's another one. Love that movie. But for me, the movies that come... I'll have what she's having. (laughs) Exactly, right? (laughs) But but for me, the movies that come to mind are um, Forget Paris. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Basketball. He's a basketball referee. Yes. Wow. Right? And that's... I I tell you, how many years in, you still surprise me. And that's the one with with the father who, you know, was losing it and they'd be driving down the road and he'd have to read every billboard said you want it you got it toyota it just ah it's just so brilliantly done so so forget paris is one that i we've discussed this before this is coming back to me because i made the comment that i do that with fuel prices and i get royally made fun of for identifying all fuel prices. I think it's a a very typical dad move (laughs) is to say that one's a cent cheaper. You know, like, oh, I wish I hadn't got it back there. This one's two cents cheaper a gallon. Oh, 
ah, oh, got to hand in my dad card. <laughs> so yeah, I, I definitely am a, a reader of those uh, billboards pricing. I'm, I'm old. <laughs> we are old. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, 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 yeah. anyway. What have you been up to? Because mm. I know you have been busy and, and we wanted to catch up on wax. And so I'm eager to hear what you've been up to. Well, let's see. I was the first week of Chicago. Sorry. <laughs> That's funny. The first week of Words Chicago, I was hard. in November. <laughs> I'll have what he's having. <laughs> the first week of November, I was in Chicago with our friend uh, Kevin Obis. Uh, who is the who is Impex's you know Pacific Northwest guy, but he also handles Illinois. You know, yeah. checks out neighboring Just state a, makes perfect sense. Hey, listen. Yep. And anybody overseas, have a little look at a map right now. Have a little look at what that territory is. Listen, Washington, <laughs> Oregon, Illinois, classic. Before I was the national guy, I was the Northeast in <laughs> Illinois. So you know, it's just it's a pattern. Um, so spent some good time there. I was at the Indie Spirits show, Dave Schmier's show, and, and it was just really nice to be out and in front of people again and being in, in an environment that seemed semi-normal, granted, you know, masks are up, masks are down, you know, there, there's that kind of... There, there's that there's that moment where you go into a room and everybody has their mask on and then eventually it comes down and everybody has their masks off until you spot someone that just seems questionable and you're like, I'm going to put my mask back on. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so, so there was that. But I'll tell you, we also did an event later that week at Warehouse Liquors that was a joint Glen Allicky and Single Cast Nation mm. event. And, you know, as all things Single Cast Nation, the event sold out in, you know, in, in record time, 45 people. And, and it was so nice to see some good Chicago Nation members. Uh, again, Debbie Samuels, right? Um, Dan Grison, um, Mike and Bonnie Nolan, Michael Bloom, you know, the, the list goes on. And so that was great. And then I had a f few days home. And and then I was <laughs> in New Jersey. Are we in the middle of OND, Joshua? Yeah. Oh, is that it? Uh, <laughs> is that it? For, for those listeners who don't know, OND stands for October, November, December, which are the busiest time of year for, for the whiskey. For, well, for the the spirits industry in general, but whiskey for sure. And and then this past week I was in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Massachusetts uh, with the Milk and Honey guys, Tal Hotner and Tomer Gorin. And spending a week with two crazy Israelis, uh, it just made the world right. I, I don't think I've laughed this hard in a good long while. I absolutely loved my time with them. And I have to tell you a story here. So so I'm with them for a week, and, and they told me, when we come to the U.S., we're here to work. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a taskmaster. If you tell me you're coming to work, well, I, 
well, first off, you don't have to tell me you're coming to work. I'm going to put you to work. But if you tell me I'm here to work, then I'm going to make it even doubly so. So I made sure that they were working from 8 a.m. until 1 a.m. pretty much every day. And in a way, that's a good thing. But in a way, that's a bad thing because you know, Jason, I've been running every day of my life since January. And so, <laughs> and, and, and that's so like exactly made... 11 days away. I've been running every day of my life since January. <laughs> 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 kind of buried the lead on that one, right? Maybe since January, I've been running every day, as opposed to I've been running every day of my life. Since January. I am in control of my own narrative, of how I wield the English language. Thank you very much. <laughs> really like a bludgeon. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and, so, and so I had the, the stretch of days where I, I couldn't get up in the morning and run, comfortably at least. Mm. Mm. And then midweek. And you've done that every day of your life. Since January. Since January. I can see that really, <laughs> really missing. I really see that. Uh-huh. It was for exactly eight days. Anyway, um, <laughs> listeners of the podcast who remember an episode from season one or two are going to love that one. Um, and, and, so, and so I remember sometime during that week, there was going to be like the Wednesday, Thursday, or the Thursday, Friday, or whatever it was where I knew I can get a couple good runs in. (laughs) And so I was looking forward to that. The night prior to the first day where I'd be able to run, you know, we're Mm -hmm. at this festival, it was Kosher Fest, and I need to tell you a story about Kosher Fest in a second. Um, (laughs) The story's inception. There are stories within (laughs) stories within stories. Well, why don't you tell us that story? Instead of coming back to it, tell us that story now and then circle back to Could you spin your top? To the main Just story. make sure you're not dreaming. Just spin your top. Um, <laughs> and, and, so, and so I'm looking forward to this run, but we're doing Kosher Fest, which is uh, a trade event from, from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and you're just on your feet the whole time. And my back was killing me. And I'm trying to crack my back, and I can't crack it. And and so Tal says, oh, let me, let me try to crack your back. And so he has me put my hands behind my head, and he sort of lifts me from behind, and that didn't work. And we're with um, our new New York, New Jersey guy, George Summer, who is one of the funniest and fun people you will ever meet. He says, oh, you need your back cracked? I'll crack your back. Now, I'm 5'10". Ten and a half or so. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about controlling your own narrative. Okay, uh-huh. go on. Continue. I was for my for the whole purposes life of this since, conversation. Uh, um, <laughs> and and he, I would say, is maybe five five eight, so he's a bit shorter than me. And so and so he says, you know, just you know, just, just let me let me crack your back. And so he comes to me. <laughs> And we're face to face, and he puts his arms around me, kind of like how I cracked Tamara's back. This right? is your technique. Yeah, yep, technique. You've done this to my wife numerous times. Oh, and I've been God. asked to leave the room. I've done it to your wife so many times. So many times. And so many times. <laughs> I, I can't even watch it anymore. I've seen it so many times. 
<laughs> it's like a cuck move. But anyway, and 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 so I'm like, all right, he's going to do this the proper way. Because I, I know what Tal was trying to do, and, and that's not how my back mm-hmm. cracks, but I know how my back cracks. And so he grabs me from the middle, you know, and he puts, he balls his fist and, and he puts it in the middle of my back and he goes to squeeze and lifts me while he squeezes. And then he rolls his fist up the spine of my back. And the problem is he was so strong <laughs> that I think think he either bruised or cracked one of my ribs. I have been in excruciating pain. I can't sleep properly. I can't lift things. I can't I can't run. <laughs> I can't do sit-ups. I can't do anything. And I have a rib that's swelling. I've got a bit of bruising oh going on. And if you were to if you were to just, you know, like, you know, touch my ribs and just go up and up and down them to to see how they are one of them just seems a bit misplaced (laughs) so i broke a rib during this event uh so that's wow yeah so you asked me what i've been up to Uh, i've been you know you're breaking ribs i've been breaking ribs man I thought you were going to let out a little a little sound or something when he gave you a wee squeeze. Oh boy, did a little, I give out a another sound. another classic dad move, but <laughs> no, it was a rib injury. That was oh, unexpected. Oh, that was, that was that was rough stuff. And then I have to tell you this story really quickly. I tell you what though, you're thinking about your back less. <laughs> right? That's Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> My back has been great ever since. So do you remember earlier on in the podcast, seasons one and two and, and probably part of three, every interview that we had, we would finish the interview off with, let's talk about common misconceptions. Indeed. Right? Indeed. indeed. And, and I, there were some that, I, that I, I remember I thought were fantastic, like Ian Allen saying people wanted to know where they store their malt syrup because whiskey is made from a malt syrup. I liked whiskey-colored liquid running from stills, and people are surprised when the liquid is clear. Yes, yeah. And so, you know, so there are these great misconceptions. And so here we are at Kosher Fest, and there was a shop owner, or a former shop owner, I should say, former shop owner, who came to our booth, and, and are we about at, to find out why that's former? Yeah, that's up. <laughs> what do you mean there are health codes? <laughs> and and so, you know, at the table, so this is kosher fest, right? So what do we have at the table? Mm-hmm. We have kosher certified whiskeys. So we've got M&H on one side and we have Pendarin on the other side because some of Pendarin's whiskeys are, are, are certified. And, and this guy comes up to George and he says to him, so, so what are these? And he says, you know, this is single malt Welsh whiskey. And, and he says, yeah, but like, you know, what, what, what's the base from it? Is it like, do they just put vodka into the cask? And he, and he said, well, you know, technically you can't put vodka into a cask and, and have that turn into whiskey because, you know, spirit has to be distilled to a certain level. He said, he said no, you schmuck, you're wrong. He said, as soon as you put a liquid into a cask, it becomes whiskey. 
And he said, no, sir, you know, I don't want to correct you here, but that's not correct. And he, <laughs> and he, I don't want to correct you, but I am correct I'm gonna you correct. right now. And, he's, and he says, are you kidding me? I've taught classes about this. If you put vodka into, into a cask, that's fucking whiskey. Not only is it fucking whiskey, when you put vodka into a cask, it comes out as rye whiskey. <laughs> to which George says, I'm, I, I'm sorry. You know, and I'm, like, I'm trying to calm George down here because George can get a little wound up. And I didn't, you know, this guy was coming in hot. This guy was like nose to nose with George, tapping him on the shoulder with his finger like, you're a schmuck. You're a fucking schmuck. And you're a blah, blah, blah. And then he goes on and he says, anything you put into cask is whiskey. Cognac is whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) Am I? Oh my God, we're back to Inception again. Where's the top? I need the spinning top. And George said. Oh my Lord. and he said, well, no, you know, cognac is a protected spirit that's made from grapes. You know, whiskey has to be made from grain. And I'm like, and I really thought, like, all of this happened so quickly, so rapid fire, that I thought what was going on is they were having just a bit of fun with one another. Because it got a little loud and it got a little heated. And then I realized this guy was being dead serious and he was going on about how he would have would run seminars and he would be teaching people about how whiskey was made and what was whiskey and what wasn't whiskey and how it can or cannot be classified and you know this this conversation gets over but it reminded me of how important this this question of what are some of the common misconceptions you hear because you have actual schmucks educating, miseducating people on what is and what cannot be called whiskey. (laughs) Cognac is whiskey. Vodka in a cask is rye whiskey. (laughs) That's the most like... What did we always say with the misconception bit? Look, we're not looking to throw anybody under the bus. We're not looking to make anybody feel small. We're not looking to embarrass anybody. We're just, you know, oftentimes these come from a place of truth. Yeah, right? sure. Yep. In this moment, I got nothing. nothing. Like, this just sounds like literal crazy talk. Like... Like you take straw and you run it through a spinning wheel and you spin gold. Like, okay, Rumpelstiltskin, calm down. Like, settle down. Like, and then and then added on top of it, this person was in charge of running seminars. Yeah, and and then and so after that was done and he left, there was another person there who knew of him, and she had said. Oh, you were talking to so-and-so? Oh, gosh, he is, he's the schmuck. He's been divorced four times. He lost his shop. This, that, and the other thing. Oh, yeah, that, that, that all makes sense. That all makes sense. And so... Wow. So you asked wow. me what I've been up to? This is what I've been up to. 
that <laughs> so <laughs> mental. My head is spinning from that. Oh, gosh. Well, so, so let me just say this quickly. I know you and I are in catch-up mode, and there's a lot to talk about, but we have a guest yes. who we're very excited to get to. A VIP. Just a VIP. A, a, a very important a, guest. A double VIP, triple yeah, VIP. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just wanted to say, we interviewed Billy Abbott, a mm-hmm. um, month, six weeks ago, however however time works. And his book was coming out. I'm very pleased to say his book has come into me in Virginia. I have to send your copy on to you, Joshua. But it came in Friday afternoon. I read it Friday afternoon. And I, I texted Billy immediately to say, Billy, I'm three pages in and I'm already stealing every single word I've read so far for my next presentation. <laughs> and it's so interesting that you bring up this idea of vodka going into a cask and becoming whiskey. In the beginning of the book, and I don't want to steal Billy's thunder here, but he describes whiskey in a way that, whiskey production in a way that I've never heard it described. And I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. But one of his things is you've essentially made a bad quote unquote vodka a clear alcoholic spirit from grain, yeah. which you then put into a cask. Yeah. And from that point, magic happens. But I was so excited to get my hands on the book. I so enjoyed the conversation. And, and over the last couple of weeks, Jess and I have been texting back and forth with her being in the UK. She received her Billy Abbott book mm-hmm. before us. She'd started reading it. And I think she hit the nail on the head. And I think this should be on a future cover. It's like Billy's reading the book to you. Hmm. You can't not read the book in Billy's voice. Ah, and I don't mean that. I don't mean accent, I mean the way he comports himself. Yeah, sure. You can't not read it with Billy in your ear. And and when I read it on Friday afternoon, it, that was absolutely true for me. Billy's right there in your ear as you're reading it. Oh, so I love Billy in um, ear. He did say it should be in the US by May, mm-hmm. uh, I think he'd said. You know, who knows how time frames alter there. You can still buy it from him. Um, and what did we say the URL was? Philosophyofwhiskey.com? Dot com, yeah. Yep, yep. You can buy it from him, but I think he specifically said, if you're not in the UK, please don't buy it from him. So he's changed his tune oh, he's on that. he's changed this tune. Look at that. All right. Yeah. Okay, so then yeah. please buy it from him because <laughs> he'll he'll get a bit more money if you buy it directly from him, hopefully. Uh, he definitely does. It's just a bit more money doesn't actually mean anything when you see how much more it is. But you should definitely get it from Billy and definitely get it signed. I am plugging in philosophyofwhiskey.com into my browser and I am looking at Billy's webpage. So... 100% look up philosophyofwhiskey.com. And if you can get that from Billy, definitely go ahead and do so. It's well worth your time. It'll take you, well, <laughs> if you're dramming and texting Billy and trying to finish up your work day and putting out small fires, it'll take you maybe an hour to read, an hour and a half. But what a read. Tickety-boo. Beautiful. Now, who are we talking to today? We are talking to... The absolutely wonderful Georgie Crawford. Brilliant. Former distillery manager of Lagavulin. Uh, former distillery manager of Port Ellen. 
And yep, that startup project, yeah. Current distillery manager of Elixir Distillers Distillery that's not not on Isla yet, but they have officially broken ground. So on the soon-to-be Elixir Distillers uh, distillery project, she is the distillery manager there, which which is exciting. Well, and one of the things that we cover in the interview is what does it mean to be a distillery manager of a distillery that hasn't been built? And <laughs> yep. she totally expected the question, absolutely had an answer ready to go. And, and I thought it spoke very well to her skill set. Mm. And, and it's interesting. So, so we just witnessed John Campbell. Mm-hmm. I was going to say retire from Lefroy. It kind of makes it sound even more serious departure, than it is. He, departure. Right? Yeah. Right. He has departed Lefroy for for another as none named project. But so many times when we spoke to John, what was he really tasked with? And these are his words, not ours. But it was scheduling. It was human resources. It was management of people and people's times. And... Obviously, going on the road, talking about the whiskies he was putting together. Mm-hmm. And without saying too much on Georgie's behalf here, I loved hearing her talk about the distillate. If you're looking to do X with the distillate, then you need to produce it in this way and ferment it in that way and mash it mm-hmm. in this way. But if you're looking to do this other thing with a distillate, then you have to do this other, you know, <laughs> set of things within yeah. production. Yep. And I, I really liked that. I really enjoyed hearing that from her. Um, and so obviously within this interview, she'll get to put many more leaves on those branches. Um, but for you, any, any takeaways or any signposts for the listener today? I'll say this one thing about Georgie. People have told us from the beginning, right, because this is the first time you and I had ever met her, really had a conversation with her. They said she really is super cool, super easy, and you're going to connect with her immediately. And it was from the get-go. Like, I felt as if she was one of us. Like, like we would picture us chanting together, smashing our hands on the table, one of us, one of us. She was just (laughs) cool as hell. There was no moment in time where I felt, okay, there's that awkward moment where you start to get to know someone and then you find the common ground and then and then the connections really start. Nope. It was it was it was from the beginning. And all I can think was this is this is just a mate. Meanwhile, we're talking Georgie Crawford here, right? We're talking the distillery former distillery manager of Lagavulin, right? My gateway whiskey, my still my favorite distillery to date, and we're just hanging out as if we're we're mates who have been on for a, for a long time, and and I thought that was very cool. Very much so. Let's turn it over to us and Georgie Crawford. Firstly, Georgie, thank you so much for joining us. It really is its an honor to have you on the podcast, but, but even more so, it was cool just hanging out before we pressed record. So many people, you know, you hear the names like 
Georgie Crawford and John Campbell and Mickey Heads, and, and you get a little put on edge a little bit because these are the the rock star names within the you know distillery manager world, and you just put us at ease, and it just felt like we were talking to an old. You already so, have her shaking her head at us, so that's we're off to a good start. Yeah, but the listeners can't see that, Jason. They can't see her shaking. They her head. can now. Yeah, but the listeners don't know that you know the likes of myself and Mickey and John and. Colin and the other guys all bump into each other in the co-op on a Friday night when we're doing our shopping. So we certainly don't feel like rock stars of, <laughs> of anything when we're, uh, we're, all, we're all in sort of uh, getting our pizzas and things like that. So it's not like that for us, certainly. <laughs> so uh, we definitely want to talk, we, we'd like to talk about your, your own whiskey journey, but I don't think we can set the stage properly, or I should say, the proper way to set that stage is to first understand your own spark. You know, what got you started in whiskey? What was it about whiskey that made you think, hmm, this, this may be for me? Um, it, it certainly wasn't a natural thing for me initially. It was kind of within the first stage of, of stepping into the industry when I worked at the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. And what might be surprising to people is that I didn't go there to work because I was interested in whiskey at all, I'll be honest. Um, I was running bars and restaurants in Edinburgh, had gone away traveling for a couple of years around the world, had come back and I saw a job um, that had a the bar closed at 11 at night, which is like really early for a bar closing. <laughs> and I thought, God, that's a nice job, actually. I'll be home in, in bed by midnight. So I'll apply for that job. And it was, it was actually the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. And um, although, you know, I, I wasn't a whiskey drinker or um, hugely into whiskey at that time, I obviously had grown up in Ireland, you know, had been sort of um, immersed in it in my childhood. It was kind of in the, the background of everything um, here. Mm. And um, my uncle worked for Bomore in Auchentosh. Um, and you know I grew up in a pub also in Isla so you know it was in the sort of backdrop of of that as well so I just wrote the words I'm from Isla on my CV um, <laughs> and popped it into the Scotch Mall Whiskey Society I obviously did run bars and restaurants so from that point of view obviously knew what I was doing so uh, so yeah so they brought me in for for an interview it's like the old days where you used to just sit at a table and have a chat with someone and you know, at the end of it, they gave you a job or didn't give you a job and they gave me a job, but they also gave me a, a cast strength rose bank to taste. And at that point, I thought, oh, oh goodness, <laughs> oh, goodness, <laughs> what if I splutter this or I can't, you know, can't keep it down. Um, but, you know, that was that was sort of the first of many incredible whiskies. And it was really through spending time with people there who were so enthusiastic that eventually I thought, you know, I really need to try and understand what it is. And it was other people's sparks, actually, that sort of set set my spark going. And, and eventually there was a moment where, you know, I was um, nosing a whiskey where I just thought, oh, I get this. <laughs> I absolutely get mm. this now. I understand what it is. This is so unbelievably huh. complex. And, you know, I can I can really get what it is that, that people see in this. And that's kind of what started it. And from there, it was what I would really reflect on as being nosy and wanting <laughs> to understand um, what was, mm. you know, behind all that and what made all these different whiskies um, so unique and different. And, and that sort of really sort of set me off on a bit of a journey. And I think... The other thing that sort of was going on at the same time as well for me is I got 
incredibly proud of the product, I think, as well. The fact that in Scotland and then, of course, you know, my Isla connection, we made these incredible global products. And that sort of still blows my mind to this day. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that was the other thing that was spurring me on was, you know, I would I would be going on holiday in places, whether it was Iceland, Cambodia or whatever, and walking into bars and bottle shops and mm-hmm. seeing these products and thinking this is mind-blowing that this is happening that we make these products in scotland and and we have this you know real global outreach and that that sort of also tried pushed me forward into sort of wanting to be a part of it and understand it more do you remember which whiskey was the one that the pieces oh, came stole together my question, on jason you stole my question <laughs> it's interesting to me actually. that you didn't volunteer the information and so i didn't know if it was no, no, right no, to no. Um, I do. parse and it out I actually have a bottle of it as well, still that unopened because, oh, nice. um, oh, uh, yeah, it, it was that sort of moment that I just thought, you know, I'm going to do this, and you know, this shows you how spoiled um, I started my career <laughs> and pretty much have, have continued. Um, it was, uh, I think, it was 24 years old, but it was certainly in its 20s. It was a Capardonic. There you and, go. Right. There, there you go. go. In right. society terms, it was number 3811. Um, and yeah, so I've, I've still got that bottle um, in my collection. Um, so I, I'm waiting for a good occasion probably to open it. Um, so, Well, it's interesting that you've now tied my second question to my first, which is, is it true you were at the SMWS the same time as Mark Watt, who's a huge Capardonic fan? <laughs> oh my gosh, look at that. There's probably every chance... It was Mark I was drinking it with, and it was probably his spark and his enthusiasm that, um, for Capardonic that probably set me on my way. I think there's every uh. chance of that. You know, I can't remember that that's exactly it, but let's make that the story now. <laughs> You're going to see the story oh. again in print later on, and Mark's going to be involved in it now. So, yeah. I think we need to start a new game. I don't know if it's six degrees of Capardonic or six degrees of Mark Watt or six degrees of Georgie Crawford, but somewhere in there. Yeah, I, I think game. the six degrees of mark what we would only ever get to two you know i think i don't think we would ever sort of go go um, much further out than that so um but yeah no i was incredibly lucky i mean at the time that i worked there the people that were there that now you know i can call my friends and who influenced mm. me and tutored me and you know it was jim dr jim swan that did our whiskey education for us you know that's actually was our wow, staff yeah. training was yeah, with yeah. him and then you had the likes of charlie mclean mm. and and robin um um lang coming in every tuesday night to do the tasting panels yeah. you know so you were you were sort of chatting to these guys and then i mean the people that worked in the bar in the back of house so as you see mark watt was there mm-hmm. um annabelle meekle was my boss and you know i, I can mm. name her as sort of my best friend still today um, you were talking about Arthur Motley as well, who's at Royal Mal Whiskey, Stephen mm. Marshall, who is making unbelievable beers now, but obviously worked for White Mackay for many years, David Blackmore, um, you know, brand ambassador in the US. So we were oh, all... Oh, you had to suffer David Blackmore. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It, it oh, can't all gosh. be rainbows Honestly, and butterflies. No, it can't be. You know. Absolutely can't be. can't be. Um, but yeah, David, David, I was going to say worked on the bar, but actually now with... No, that's terrible. I'm not going to say terrible. Yeah, did he dance? Is that what he did on a Friday night? <laughs> no. <laughs> His cowboy boots? Find ways to talk to people instead, really. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, it, you know, there are so many of us that came up and there's still people coming up through the SMWS yeah. and, it, yeah. you know, it's an incredible um, 
place really for whiskey. And, you know, that idea that I was going to get home at 11 o'clock at night was absolute <laughs> nonsense because we would all sit and taste the whiskey after work. That was a key part of the job was to actually to sit you know, and have these conversations with each other and, and learn from yeah. each other. And um, you had to taste the whiskey to be able to talk about it, obviously, with the members. Obviously. So quite often you would sit down and you would have a dram at the end of the night. And, you know, so, yeah, the, the idea of getting out at 11 o'clock never really transpired there either. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, We just ran an episode with the, the Westland crew where they talk about coming together on a weekly basis and doing blind tastings. Would that be part of what you were doing at SMWS as well? Or were you familiar with what was going on? Obviously, you've got the numerical system with the built-in anonymity, but I think we all know our favourite numbers. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I don't think we went down the blind tasting, and I'm not, I'm not a massive fan of people sort of putting whiskies in front of you and going, well, mm -hmm. guess what that is, you know, because, you mm -hmm. know, you're just, um, they're definitely trying to lead you down a path that you're not going to get it right <laughs> anyway. So, so um, not, not so much that, but certainly, you know, making your own notes, you know, sitting and, and making your own notes so that you understand, because it, I was only starting out then. So really it was about mm. that sort of learning the language and, you know, learning the language that was, you know, fitted with your memories of what these flavours were and understanding that. And I think speaking to other people, you know, you can be led in tastings where, you know, someone says something and then everyone goes, oh, yeah, it tastes of oranges or whatever. But yeah, actually, sure. without starting doing that in the first place, you would never step forward with anything. You would never sort of say what you think things taste of. So actually sometimes starting like that and sort of having that sort of psychosomatic thing happening is not a bad thing, you know, initially. Mm. So I think, you know, it's it's the one thing that, you know, I find about whiskey, is, you know, is it's it's around that sort of conversation. You know, people sort of don't go into bars and pour a vodka and iron brew and talk about it. You know, so you know, with whiskey, that that was always the case. Was you know that you you tend to sort of talk about it, and then it doesn't then just be about the whiskey. It turns into other conversations and other friendships, and you know, people opening up about you know each other and having different sort of um, occasions with each other. So that that was always the sort of thing about Agreed. doing that. And I think it's really important to do that. You know, um, you know, with with your whiskies is actually you know sharing certainly amongst yeah. staff and people at like that, and, and sort of having those conversations where they're open and relaxed, and it's not snobbish and you know one up oh, yeah. or anything like that just sort yeah. of nice um if i can ask one more question then i'll let joshua get a word in edgewise you're, you're talking about all these people being Never in the happens. same place at the same time i know <laughs> you're 100 right did you have a was this towards the the late 90s early 2000s was it Got to be careful what age you think I am here, James. I'm being, I am trying to be careful, and I don't know <laughs> if I'm doing a good job or not. Jason doesn't realize that the 90s are now 30 years ago, so let's tighten that up a little bit. Okay. Yeah, mind you, it was it was my birthday on Monday this week, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna oh, um, give away what birthday. age it was, but you're you're fine. But yeah, you're 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 not far off. Um, yeah, so it was still independently owned when I first went there. So it was okay. before Glamorangy. Um So I was there in sort of 2002, early 2002, I think it was. Um, and okay. then there was the transition period um, during that time where yeah. the Glamorangy company um, purchased the SMWS. So, yeah, so early, okay. early 2000s. The, the, the only reason I was trying to kind of get a time on it was, was actually to ask the question, which was, did you have a sense at the time that, that something big was happening right around you? as somebody who'd come in with, with no whiskey background, no whiskey knowledge, but obviously from Isla, 
Was there a sense of that, or was it just like, well, there, there's a there's a cool cool chap, there's a cool lass, there's someone I can drink with? No, I mean we were all just going to work, you know. We were all going. I mean, don't get me wrong, incredible work that um, we got to yeah. do, and not everyone sort of gets to sit and play backgammon at the end of the night and taste, I don't know, Capardonics and those banks and all that sort of stuff, which is quite often what we would do. But um, yeah, it. it, it it was it was work, but it was work with incredible mm. liquids and work with incredible people. Um, you know, eventually evolved on to being able to be you know on the tasting panel in the in the time that I was there, which you know was a real privilege. And of course, host sort of tastings up and down in the country, and and you know a, a couple of sort of wee trips abroad as well. So, but we were, you know. The, <laughs> It had been established for quite a number of years by that point as well, really, from from the sort of early, early days. Um, so, you know, it had been around, but obviously it has grown and grown and grown, you know, yeah. over over time. Um, you know, I was listening to a podcast recently where Jamie Oliver mentioned the fact that he was a member of the Scotch oh. Malt Whiskey Society, which was wow. just fantastic. I thought, what an advert. Was he wearing that. clothes at the time? It, it, <laughs> Like this podcast, I hope no one's going to actually see that I'm not wearing anything, Joshua. That's <laughs> is that not how it works in a podcast? Okay. Yep. <laughs> the naked distillery manager paging HR, paging HR. <laughs> okay. Anyway, back to another question. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, what, what I loved hearing about this, um, you know, you, you you rattled off a bunch of names. Where, you know, David Blackmore and, you know, of course yourself and, and Mark Watt and, and so on and so forth. And now these are all the larger either brand ambassadorial names or they've gone on to start their own independent bottling company or they've gone on to be distillery managers, etc. So Scotch Malt Whiskey Society was a bit of a hotbed for the next generation of the face of whiskey or the 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 people within whiskey making the whiskey. And so, and so I wonder after Scotch malt whiskey society, was it straight on to Lagavulin for you? What, or what was the next stop on the, on the train for you and on the whiskey train? Yeah. Well, funnily enough, um, not that I want to sort of start any rumors. It involves Mark Walken. <laughs> but, um, All right. But, uh, All right. There's you've a got yeah, I know. I know. We're going to start some sort of rumor here, but, um, <laughs> No, so I, you know, as you know, in whiskey, you meet people. That's one of the huge, you know, draws about whiskey and being part of the industry is that it's incredibly small, really. You know, from a point of view of, yeah. of um, producers and people that work in it. And um, over time, got to know a friend of Mark's, um, Mike Lord, and um, he was. Um, purchasing the whiskey shop up in Dufton and he'd approached mm-hmm. me at that point to say look you know I'm, I'm not going to be able to leave um he had a job in London at the time I'm not going to be able to leave London for a couple of years you know to to sort of go up but I really want to purchase it because it's for sale just now and would you be interested in, in going up and managing it for me and that was kind of the step then the next step um on the journey was to move up actually into Dufton um, which then sort of opened up a whole other area of understanding whiskey for me because I'd worked obviously with single cask, single cask strength. I mean, talk about sort of starting at the top, I suppose, a little bit. But <laughs> then I had to sort of go and learn, well, actually, single cask 
whiskey is they're all unique you know and even from one distillery you can have quite unique flavors coming through in the cast so actually I through the shop started to learn more about what the distillery styles actually were Mm. and that then Mm -hmm. is what led on the sort of journeys you know as it continued to say well how is that different you know how is it that there is these distillery styles and and how how does that sort of work and because I was then based in Speyside I got to spend a lot more time than I did in Edinburgh actually going to distilleries you know and and that was a big part of of what I did when I was up there obviously um, we were involved as the shop still is today in the Spirit of Speyside Whiskey Festival hosting lots of um, different whiskey events through the shop and and going out and sort of going to distillery tours. And at that time, I shared a house with Mark. So he was working for Duncan Taylor at the time. Um, you know, and there yeah. was a lot of whiskey and a lot of whiskey friends, um, you know, that would come and stay with us during that period as well. So it was really still discovery through liquid for me at that point, you know, but really starting to build my knowledge more about how it's actually made rather than just talking about the end product. It's so interesting that you had that direction on your journey. We, we've spoken so much you know, on the podcast and just in general about people who discover distilleries and have favourite distilleries, then go on to find these cask strength, single cask versions. Mm-hmm. And we always talk about it. It's good to know the distillery to know what that single cask is really delivering that's different or off the beaten path mm-hmm. or, you know, a zig instead of a zag. And so it's, it's an interesting way to go from, I've done all of these single casks. Now, what is it you do at your distillery? <laughs> Talk to me about your distillery. <laughs> yeah, That's really interesting. Do you know, I realised when I sort of got to the shop and, and sort of got into sort of the more the sort of Speyside whiskey side of stuff that I was like, oh my God, I really don't know anything about that you know uh, we were so very spoilt and but blinkered in a way towards this uniqueness of this single cask and actually what you were doing all the time was just selling that one cask or that one story around that liquid now yes of course mm. you learn a bit about the distillery but you know it, it wasn't as immersive into understanding um the connection between sort of the house style or the distillery style and how that was then made and then you know what the cask stuff is a, a, is separate from that that is a mm. layer of uniqueness that's built in through the maturation process so mm-hmm. yeah so it, it it opened up my eyes to realize how little I knew you know which is good I think that's mm. you know it's um you know I still have my eyes opened every day to that but yeah so it's <laughs> it was really really interesting and it was a it was a brilliant period as well because you know working with friends you know and uh, people mm. that were genuinely passionate about whiskey for all the right reasons you know and and really about um educating other people and that was one of the key things when i went to my next job that i took with me which was really around that sort of educating other people educating myself and as i, as I was doing that mm-hmm. really sort of trying to educate other people so what was that next yeah. job I, i'm yeah. still my mind is still blown i never knew you were at the uh, Dufftown Whiskey Shop. I just never knew that about you at all. Yeah, yeah, I was there um, just shy of two years. Um, just at the time then that um, Mike Mike sort of moved up because initially, as I say, he wasn't he wasn't able to base himself in Dufton. Um, but I saw a job. I wasn't looking for a job particularly, but someone sent me um, the Press and Journal, which is the local newspaper up in that area, and said, "Look, you know, you might be interested in this." And it was the brand home manager at Talisker Distillery. 
And so that's the oh, visitor right. centre manager. And that was the first job. That was my stepping stone into Diageo. I went to Sky uh, in 2007 and took over the, okay. the role of running okay. the visitor centre there and, and really sort of trying to put um, more emphasis into less about whiskey tours um, and more emphasis, more into experiential um, stuff that we were doing and tastings and sort of really trying to do education. And then in the time that I was there, we also started to host the internal Diageo um, sort of education programme called the Malt Advocates programme. Um, so mm -hmm. I was one of the hosts for the Malt Advocates where we were training other people in Diageo um, around um, the brands and, and sort of the, the uniquenesses of, of, of our whiskies, which was absolutely fantastic. But because it's very isolated on Sky and as a management <laughs> team, it's very small, you naturally start working in production. So we have an on-call system um, at most distilleries where a manager should be available 24-7 because the plant runs 24-7. Um, so one manager must be available overnight and at weekends um, in case anything happens that the, the operations team need you. And that started me doing more and more of this sort of production side of things. And that's kind of uh, where I started to think, actually, because I think when I first joined Diageo, I think if the interview, they asked me, where do you see yourself in five years time? You know, standard sort of question. And I said, global brand ambassador. I'm going to do a global brand ambassador job for you in five years' time, and that, that's that's where we're going to be, and that's not how it went at all. So, you know, I, I, I sort of just really got involved in production and and the sort of understanding the process and trying to trying to understand the process, and that's that's kind of that's kind of where I, I ended up, and and it was from, um, you know, my my time at Talisker that then they took me onto a management um production management program that took me then to Glenord and Teninich Distillery, which not a lot oh, of people sort nice. of get to go to, but that was where I was based for nine months, was um, between the two sites, but mostly at Teninich at the time. And then from there, they approached me and said, uh, Peter Campbell, the distillery manager on Isla, is looking to uh, get a move to the mainland. His kids are ready to go to university and, you know, I had some internal um, and external sort of exams and things that I had to, to do to, to sort of pass being a manager. And they said, you know, all being well, how do you fancy the, the, the distillery manager at Lagavulin job? So that was uh, pretty mind-blowing, <laughs> I have to say, at the time. So, um, yeah, so that was 2010. I came back home um, as the manager at Lagavulin and my dad was over the moon at the thought of getting some sort of discount in the shop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and you're coming up. home. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I'm coming home, and he gets to see me all the time. You're absolutely right. That's what he was thinking. A close second. A close second. Was there a part for you that in, in moving Isla off to Edinburgh, off to Dufton area, off to Sky? Was there a part of you had thought about going home? Would there be a potential for you to go home? Did you think? I'm going to be one of those people that leaves Isla and doesn't go home. What were you thinking there as an illich? Yeah, well, I left Isla when I was a teenager and I don't think at that time I had any thought that I was going to be going back there. I think yeah. when I started working in whiskey, there was a little inkling in the back of my head that it might lead me back there, but it wasn't a plan. You know, it wasn't like a, I'm going to go back to Isla. Um, and it, it still probably wasn't a plan when I was starting out on um, the production sort of management stuff. But, you know, 
there would be always an inkling, but of course, you know, with with many of these jobs, when you work um, with a company like Diageo, and it, you know, it's the same with some of the other larger uh, whiskey companies, that there's a chance that yes, you might go back, but you might not be there for you know for a long, long time. You might move again, or you might go into another mm-hmm. role. You know, there's always opportunities to still do that brand ambassador job eventually, if you, if that's what sort of uh, you fancied. So I think even when I did come back to Isla, I don't know if I was convinced I was going to. That was it. You know, this would be the place that I sort of wanted mm. to, to to come back and settle. Now, that is inevitably what has happened. Um, you know, I have <laughs> no desire to leave Isla. But, of course, I left when I was a teenager. And, you know, you wanted to be able to go out to the cinema and to the shops and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, that that's what I... Th- at 13, 14 wanted from, from life, you know what I mean? Whereas now returning 20 years later when I first came back in, in, in 2010, that wasn't necessarily, um, as it panned out, everything that I, I felt I needed and wanted uh, in the end. Yeah. You may have touched on it a little bit when you were talking about Talisker, but I'll, I'll try to ask this question. What was it about the production side of things in Talisker that that grabbed your attention are you someone who who's always liked the nuts and bolts of things do you like tweaking things to make them more efficient like what was it because you went in there or when you had your conversation with Diageo you said I want to be a global brand ambassador it's a stark difference to being attracted to a production position so what was the spark there that grabbed your attention do you know, it's really difficult, I think, to put my finger on it. I just like working in the production team. I feel, you know, just really, really at home working with the team more in the production and process. And don't get me wrong, there's always been an element in in the roles that I've done and, and still, you know, in, in my, my new job, whereas you get the best of both worlds. So I will absolutely, you know, be a part of the production team I like firefighting. I'm, I'm a pretty good problem solver. I don't get, you know, flustered if there is an issue. I'm, I, I'm quite sort of methodical in my thought process. And you have to remember, you know, discovery managers are not necessarily there turning the steam valves every day. That's that's your production team's job. But you are there to sometimes get through some of the difficult things that will happen in a distillery and, and to support people and put, you know, a lot of things in place to make sure that we're doing what we need to do, that we're making the right products and, and, and you know, you're covering off all that side of it. But as I say, I've been lucky in the roles that I've had I get to also do the education piece. I still get to do the talking to people and igniting that spark in them that was that was given to mm. me. So, you know, I, I have worked at Talisker. It's still a brand-facing site. Now, yes, I went and did um, the more sort of Tinnanich, Glenord stuff to really get my process knowledge up and also, you know... Um, What I didn't know at the time was they were setting me up for coming to Isla because it was a similar setup, a couple of distilleries and a maltings, you know. So Mm. it was it it was around sort of trying to get as much experience in maltings as well, because when you do work within a group of distilleries, you don't just necessarily just work at your own distillery as a duty manager. You then are getting called out different sky to Isla. But, you know, you were maybe one week in five. You were the duty manager for the whole week. And if there was a breakdown at Portel Maltings, you were going to Portel and Maltings. If there was a breakdown at Clearly, you were going mm. there. So, you you know, so yeah, that that was your sort of process education and the firefighting element of it. That you know, <laughs> although we don't want to be in that place, you have to be, you know, you have to be quite able to do. But still, you get to 
talk to people as well. You you know, you, you get to sort of educate people. And I think probably from understanding my own ignorance all the way through my whiskey journey has got me to a place where I think you know, people should be a bit more educated maybe in some of the <laughs> process stuff. And, and what I like is being able to do it in terms where it's not above people's heads. We don't have to overcomplicate mm. it and we can be quite transparent and open about the process and the production side of things, but do it in a way which is inclusive and it's an easier mm. conversation with people. So I've always really enjoyed that sort of the fact that I have managed to put my feet in both camps and do the brand side and the production side yeah brilliant brilliant jason you look like you have a question you're putting up your question finger so so go ahead you 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 do you if i may um so i've i've distilled everything i would want to ask you about lagavulin down into one question (laughs) and it's and actually it's not production it's i love lagavulin eight-year-old and the fact that I'm drinking Georgie Crawford Lagavulin is exciting to me, very exciting. It, this is a similar question to the one that, that I asked uh, Bill Lumsden when he was on. Ardbeg puts out Wee Beastie with a name and a number five on it. We've now got Lagavulin putting out, and you know, obviously the name Lagavulin, but with an eight on it. What was the hope, the goal... What, the sales pitch, Lagavulin is so well known for the 16 and the 16 was the entry point. Obviously, the 12 in Bourbon is living its life in the annual releases. But now there's a store shelf eight that's fantastic and wonderfully affordable, incredibly drinkable. How did it come to be and what was your role in that? Well, to be honest with you, with a lot of established brands that you might go and work with, you know, you, you don't necessarily, as the distillery manager, have a huge amount of input into it. You know, so absolutely, like like the 16-year-old, our jobs, um, you know, the distilleries quite often is to be custodians of the liquid and the process and the quality yeah. and, and making sure that you're kind of doing the same thing again at the distillery. And then, of course, it comes to the um, blenders. So quite often um, in a lot of distilleries where it comes to what the new releases are going to be, what are we going to do? It actually sits in the hands of the marketing team because they see what the consumer Mm -hmm. wants and it sits then Mm -hmm. with the blenders. However, with the eight-year-old, I can categorically say I was in the room at the time the concept actually came up, So, which is quite nice. And I I don't think you knew that necessarily, Jason, because we certainly hadn't talked about it. So I did not. We um, came up with the concept of that for the 200-year anniversary. And I think when you first see the Mm. bottles that came out, they actually have got Mm -hmm. the the logo for the 200-year on them. And I think what we wanted to do, because we knew we would do the trophy malt, you know, the the 25-year-old. And, of course, we did the single cask for charity, which was incredible. Um, But we also wanted something that people would actually open and drink. That, that's, that was it. And I think when we sat and we talked about okay. it, um, and we were all sitting in the malt mill, um, the old um, building that we've got on site, which was um, the maltings of the malt mill distillery. We were all sat in mm-hmm. there. And, I mean, it was, again, a who's who. I feel like a terrible name drop today. Um, but, you know, a who's who <laughs> of Diageo sort of people. Um, so in there you had um, Joe McKercher from the archives, you know, so she was there mm-hmm. sort of, and she'd been looking at different stuff as well. Then you had Nick Morgan there, obviously, as well. Myself, mm-hmm. you had Donald Colville. So, you know, and, and a lot of sort of other, um, you know, important people in the in the marketing teams and stuff like that. And sitting talking about, you know, if we were going to do something, what are we going to do? And it was absolutely something affordable. 
something affordable and something that cost less than the 16. That was that was the key c- criteria as far as we were concerned um, and that people would open and drink and celebrate with us. And that, that's what we wanted. So the story of the eight-year-old then came from Jo because she'd um, done a lot of um, looking at the history and obviously you look at sort of pinpoints in time where you can see certain things mm-hmm. were happening at a distillery and most of that has been written in books and for a lot of people the Alfred Bernard book um, of visiting mm-hmm. the distilleries is one of those key points where you can see we know we were making whiskey of such and such a style because he writes about it you know in, in the late 1800s and in that book he had tasted an eight-year-old and had declared it to be you know fantastic so that that's where then the inspiration for making it an eight-year-old and i think the other thing i think we all agreed on the day was let's put the number on the bottle and not you know not not say what it is let's say what it is and be proud of it let's you know get the liquid and then that's where you know um maureen robinson um started then working with the liquids and looking at what what could be pulled together and that's where the eight-year-old um see the the eight-year-old um got pulled together and i have to say it is absolutely adored in this house i mean we were big 16 year old drinkers and the eight-year-old then became something that really became one of our sort of day-to-day go-to sounds terrible day-to-day whiskies but um one of our sort of real day-to-day go-to whiskies and i just think it is absolutely cracking um and affordable was 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 the sort of key thing really um so that people wouldn't be putting it on a shelf and dusting it down every year when they were tidying up their bottles and going that's my wee lag of villain that i got for the for the anniversary it was actually get it open get it drunk and then they've decided to keep it on because it obviously was such a success um, which is fantastic which i'm so excited about the the continuation of this and the entry into the line that obviously there's no hiding the cork uh, on this one, but while you were speaking, I'd made it all the way to about ten minutes to noon uh, for me in Virginia, and I, I had to open it. I had to pour some. Uh, Joshua actually now I must yeah uh, acquired me a twelve pack uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, they had it for forty forty dollars a bottle, and, uh, 40 and or I, forty-two bucks. Brilliant. Yep, I placed an order for a twelve pack. And then I made sure, you know, Joshua took a bottle or two from that. Local friends here in Virginia took a bottle or two. I've got in my my closet is the other door, the one you can't see. Um, I've got it sitting in there. And so here I am now on the last, you know, like, wait, it's at the bottom label now. When this is gone, I'll go into my cupboard, I'll pull out another bottle, and it'll go right on the shelf as well. Life's hard, isn't it? Life is hard. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I was going to grab Cheers. my bottle of the eight-year-old, but so you see this little wall next to me. This is this is part of the the upstairs collection, <laughs> <laughs> and the eight-year-old is downstairs. And the mm. reason it's downstairs is that's where everybody is. And when we have guests over, I want that to be accessible. I want that to be in people's glasses. So I'm going to have to suffer. The uh, 2018 Fijil. Oh, um, I don't know how you're going to cope with that. So. That is awful. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> do you know, um, you're talking about whiskey collections there. I do, you know, I did keep bottles from the time that I was um, at Lagavulin. And, you know, it is a hardship having, you know, old festival bottles. <laughs> and then a, a situation has um, arisen recently where I'm going to have to um, drink my festival bottles because I had 
thought I was clever by um, storing them up out the way. Some of them, because these are some of them are ones that I would want to keep. You know, one of um, certain um, bottlings that I was involved in, and we put them in the loft, and that was the worst thing that I could possibly do because oh, mice, no. mice oh, have no. eaten oh. the foils. On several, oh, they eat the foils. They've nibbled the foils. They haven't like everything else is fine. They're still in the plastic bag that protects the labels. They've <laughs> nibbled some of the foils, which I think is the weirdest things. So they've not necessarily got into the whiskey, um, you know. But they've they've nibbled away at some of the foils on these whiskeys. So I'm just going to have to open and drink them now. And Joshua, you know, some of that's like the single cast 2011s that they used to do back in oh, back in the day at the festival. But I'll think about you when I open that one. It's specific. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> you were sitting drinking in Georgie's house. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there'll be a housewarming at some point soon, so maybe, maybe invite you. Brilliant, yes. We'll, we'll make ourselves available. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I'm not saying we're invited, I'll but we'll be available. I'll bring some just in case. <laughs> Uh, so, so, so before we, yeah, please, okay. Joshua, please. Well, you know, obviously part of the reason we were having you on the podcast today is you, you've taken a position with Elixir Distillers and they'll be building a distillery coming soon. But, but I'm curious, you know, I know Jason was able to distill everything he wanted to know about your time at Lagavulin through the lens yeah. of the eight-year-old. Yeah. But I'm really curious about your time at Lagavulin, and and specifically, you know, what what your day to day role was, and and how you feel that will inform your next move here. Yeah, I mean, it, I suppose it was kind of um, like I touched on before. It's that sort of custodianship, you know. These distilleries, you know, during the time that I was lucky to be at Lagavulin, it had its 200-year anniversary. So you certainly don't go in there thinking that you're going to make such a massive impact or difference to the life of Lagavulin. The life of Lagavulin is going to go on um, <laughs> way, way, way past the, the, the time that you're there. So really it's about sort of um, taking on that sort of the baton and the challenge to, to make sure that you're making the best possible product that you can at that distillery. And, you know... You can be biased, and of course, you know, I, I worked for, for Diageo, who, who owned Lagavulin, but once I sort of set out on my whiskey journey, if someone had said to me, regardless of, of who owned a distillery, if you were going to go back to Ireland and manage a distillery at that time, where would it have been? And it would have been Lagavulin. I mean, from a point of view of the quality of the product and really how people felt about it really it, it really I mean don't get me wrong all the distilleries in Isla I absolutely adore and I love all their whiskies I love all their stories um you know and there, there's just sort of great things that everyone um has done and is doing but there is just for me personally always been something about the way um that Lagavulin you know penetrates sort of people's passion and, and how they speak about yeah. it and that was you know the case for our family my dad you know um he was an accountant, although he had a pub when I was very young, he actually was a, a trained accountant and went back to being an accountant here on the island. And um, quite often at sort of Christmas, people would come and give him bottles. That would be sort of, you know, what, what was done <laughs> here on here on Isla. People leave bottles of whiskey out for the bin men at Christmas. You know, whiskey is <laughs> given for every occasion. And um, yeah. he would get excited about some whiskies, and he would, you know, and, and like villain. If he got like a villain, he knew his client really you know, thought thought that he'd done a, a good job that year. 
other whiskies, yeah. not so much. They would probably go into a raffle or, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, but certainly in our house, Lagerville has always sort of seemed to be, um, you know, the the sort of pinnacle of, of um, quality, yeah. really, and 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 um, what what was made in Isla whiskies. So, so yeah. So day to day, it was you know. <sighs> It's operations, you know, it's not the sort of glamour end of, of the business necessarily that, that people want to hear about, but it is um, unbelievably important that, that you're sort of working with a team of people that feel as passionate as you do about making that product and, and doing it in the best possible way you can. Um, but a lot of what we do at distilleries is operational. It's making sure the plant runs, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's yeah. maintenance work, it's looking for opportunities to make more liquid. You know, we did some really interesting projects in the time that we were there because the footprint could never really be made any bigger. So um, mm. we did lots of really interesting projects around, well, how can we maximise on on um, what we make here without in any way being detrimental to the quality and and the flavour profile. So that was quite a lot of what I did and quite a lot of the challenge that we took on was how how we did that. So in the time you know I was there, we did up the production level um, without really sort of doing anything that we would say would be be impactful into change yeah. in flavour. So that that was a lot of the challenge, which I really really enjoyed. I remember one afternoon we were sitting with John Campbell in his office and he was he had to go to a training where he was it was a new program for scheduling people right? and it's it's like you want to talk about what people think I do in the whiskey industry and what I do actually in the whiskey industry exactly where I was going yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep absolutely you know and it's you know I know that a question's about to come you know around what am I currently doing in my new job and it's exactly the same there's the glamour bit of what I get to do in my new job and there's the not so glamour bit I get to do in my new job you know I think um, the distillery manager job is very like the distillery itself that's that's kind of how I see it you know People come to distilleries and they want to see the glamour end of the distillery. They're like, show me your mash Mm -hmm. tun. Show me your washbacks. What are they made of? Let me have a look at your stills, you know. And and they look at the sort of the high-end glamour, glossy bit of the business. But what they don't see is the bit that actually we work more day-to-day with, which is the steam pipe work, the water, you know, the condenser pipe work. Because without all of that working properly, there is no glamour end of the business. And I think sort of that's kind of what the distillery manager job is like as well. People think it's doing podcasts and chatting to people like you and doing brand work and maybe tasting a little bit of whiskey and picking casks and things like that. But that's that's not what it's like. It's you know it's it's working with legislation and health and safety and making sure if someone's off sick that you've got you know cover done. So you know it's um, yeah people see the glamour about it the same way as they see the glamour yeah. within the distillery. But actually the jobs um, sometimes just feels like a job. Um, I know that a lot of people would think that was a bit sacrilegious to say about working um, as a distillery manager at Lagavulin, but sometimes it's just a job. Yeah. So you don't have yeah. people saying, show me your HMRC paperwork. <laughs> I want to see that side of it. <laughs> no. no one is coming in saying, can I see that confined space risk assessment? No. So, which is a lot of what we actually do day to day. So. So what do you do day to day when you're the <laughs> distillery manager of a distillery that doesn't exist yet? <laughs> incredibly good. Well, I just want to clear something up. We have got 
Groundswork right. people started on the site four days ago. So although it doesn't really? exist yet, yeah, absolutely. So on my birthday on Monday, actually, was when the guy started to arrive. So, yes. Happy birthday. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> and I just thought, what a lovely, what a lovely um, thing that the, the guys are getting started. So, yeah, so we are getting started. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. Um, I have been incredibly fortunate to be brought onto the project really early on, um, you know, and, and that's, um, you know, something of a, a, a real asset, I think, for for everyone involved, because um, I think a lot of I've spoken to a lot of managers that come in much later on, and then they're saying, "Well, why did you design it like this?" Or <laughs> what am I going to do with that? So, you know, I'm I'm incredibly fortunate to be there. Um, so, to use the same analogy as earlier on, the glamour end of what I'm doing just now is probably um, working getting sort of feedback from Sikinder and Ollie and Rajbir on what is it you want to make? That's fundamentally the first question I ask them is, is what is the spirit profile? What is the flavour profile that you want to make? Because they've been working on this project much longer than me. They know why they want to do it. They know the liquids they want to make. You know, so the first thing I've got to do just now is what is it? what is it you want to make and then my job is to then work out how we do that so I then take that information and say okay so um and I'm not going to give anything away here so, so you can try but I'll talk in general <laughs> terms if you want to have a characteristic let's say that's nutty then I would look at right well how are we going to make the mash tun work for us to make a cloudy wort and what sort of fermentation mm -hmm. time do I want to then retain that cereal nutty character and then how do I want to operate the stills to enhance that sort of cereal nutty character and once I look at all of that sort of thing I create a, a mashing and distilling plan so it might seem like it's a bit early on to already know how many mashes a week you're going to do and all that sort of stuff but if I do that and they then tell me well I want it to do a million litres a year I can work out how many washbacks that we need by doing that. Or mm -hmm. I can, you know, I can work out then design work for the stills, the volumes that will go in the stills, and then depending on the character that I want to get through the distillation process, how big those stills need to be. And I can work with the engineering team. So don't get me wrong, I'm not an engineer. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, we work with incredible people. And the engineering team that we're working with on that, then we will, they will, you know, work um, with myself on, right, well, then this is what we need to put in place. This is, you know, the levels of heating that we need to distill it in X amount of hours, because that's how we want to do it. And, and we build it from, from sure. the sort of beginning. So that that's kind of the glamour side of what I'm getting to do just now, which is talk about the characters we want to make and then work out the jigsaw puzzle of actually how do we do that and then make sure that the kit and the plant um, is in place to enable us to do that in the future. So that's the glamour side. The not so glamour side is... <laughs> HMRC licenses or environmental plans or, you know, all that sort of legislative stuff because actually we're going to make a sort of food and um, it'll be under food production. So there's a load of legislation that we have to sort of comply with there. So my job is also to make sure that we're also putting in place everything we need to operate the distillery as well. So, yeah, so we're kind of working on a bit of all of that just now um, as we go through. And then, of course, with the building work started, it's construction, so um, you know, doing a, a bit of sort of overview of that, and then it will be plant installation, and that's again where we'll sort of start a bit more intense look at how um, you know it's all coming together. But we will have already 
done 3D models and designs of the entire of the layout mm -hmm. of the distillery by that point. Sure. Um, so again, things like once they create the 3D models, I'll then use that to walk through to think of things like there's a valve. Can I reach that to maintain it? Here's a mm -hmm. pump up here in the air. Well, how am I going to get to that? Are we going to put a platform in to give access? So you, you, we have to own and understand every pump, valve, nut, bolt to think about you know where we are. So that's why I say I'm privileged to be involved just now because I've got a vested interest. I've got to operate <laughs> it with a team of people later on, you know. So I, the vested interest is to try and get it right, so that later on I can say, well, this is then dead easy to maintain and and operate and, and work with. So yeah, so it's yeah, it's really that's the bit I find really really interesting is you know the sort of making sure that we're setting ourselves up for that sort of future success of, of operating the plant as well as making the lovely liquid and you know all all that sort of stuff as well. <laughs> So I, I know there's a little, you know, obviously we're living in a pandemic and timescales have gone out the window. Is there a hope to be running Spirit in 2022, 2023, 2024? Or is it, uh, let's just break ground on October 10, let's clear the grounds and let's see what the next three months look like? Yeah, I, I mean, we were saying roughly, we, we we think it's going to take two years, you know, but of course um, there is the Isla element, um, which I'm not going to bore you with all the issues with our ferries and the weather in the winter, uh -huh, and, uh -huh, you know, uh -huh. but, you know, there, there, there is um, a lot of that to sort of consider. Um, and bearing in mind, we have also um, seen Portelland Distillery kick off um, again as well. So, you know, there is um, going to be sort of quite a lot of activity going on over the next couple of years on the island um, with stuff. So, so yeah, we're we're presuming two years. That's that's kind of what our um, projection, sort of the the project plan is um, to be in that place, and then we will take the right amount of time to commission you know, the liquid as well, um, to make sure that, that we're, we're making exactly what we, we want to make. So exciting. I know, it's super exciting. <laughs> so there's an interesting timing element here where you've got the Port Ellen Distillery about no. to finish being built, <laughs> soon to be open, nowhere no, they're, near they're, being open. So yeah, so obviously... Previous to joining Elixir, I'd, I'd been sort of part of um, the project team there, and that that all paused for for the pandemic. So really, it's only it's only oh dear, kicking yeah. off um, and, and starting back up again um, just now. But the grounds work, so the clearing of the site and preparation, um, the taking down of the redundant buildings, and and all that work had been done. And we were able to use, um, at that point, some uh, local contractors who were based on the island to do a lot of that work. Mm. So we weren't bringing people in. That was one of the key things that not just, you know, the Portellum project, but all the distilleries on Isla um, and all the sort of big businesses on Isla were, were very, um, had a lot of thought about was not adversely bringing people onto the island. So we, everyone kind of went to a process that said, yes, we will continue to operate, but unless it's legislative that certain work gets done, which in the industry that we're in, there are some yeah. things that you have to do by law um, from a maintenance point of view. But sure. unless it was legislative, really all the distilleries went into a place where all projects went on hold. So the upgrade up at um, Kalila went on hold as well. The Portelling project went on hold. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of was uh. the decision that everyone um, made 
just just across the island so that we weren't bringing people onto the island, that we didn't have to, because, of course, there was a big fear that um, because we do not have, um, you know, a, a big hospital and because, you know, if mm. anyone becomes ill, really, they have to be um, transported off the island sure. by air ambulance and things like that, that it wasn't appropriate, really, to be bringing people onto the island unless unless it was mandatory. Wow. So, so before the pandemic... It seemed as if the timing of the opening of Port Ellen was perfect as it would come right before the new Elixir Distillers distillery opened. And now now are you on, on a similar schedule? And, and if so, do you find yourself saying, well, let's let them get their ducks in a row while we do our... Like, how, do you have to think about yeah. any of, of that with two distilleries Yeah, I mean, being you, you have to think time? about it from a point of view of logistics, you know, getting stuff on and off the island. But also, yeah. you know, as we touched on earlier on when we talked about sort of, um, you know, all the people that, you know, um, I've previously worked with, the industry being very small. Well, actually, the contractors that we use tend to be quite specialist as well. So um, we tend to use quite a lot of similar hmm. um, contracting companies and things like that. So, But what's naturally happened, sure. because Protelin is um, ahead um, and is not as big a build, really, I think, in, in comparison to, to what we're um, doing with Elixir, because they are using some of the buildings that were already there. And, um, you know, it's, it's within the site of the maltings. So they're not having to sort of build everything from yeah. scratch. They're slightly ahead anyway. And then that sort of allows a natural sort of flow, I think, for anyone who's working um, on both projects or potentially might work on both projects that actually there would probably be a nice natural sort of ebb and flow from, from the Proton project into the Alexa project. So I think that hopefully that's that's kind of how I'm viewing it as a, a benefit rather than, oh my goodness, where are we putting all these contractors? Which might still, um, you know, be an issue. I think if anyone's got spare houses on Isla, now's the time to start doing B&B, I think. But um, but yeah, so I think I think it, hopefully it will be a benefit to us rather than, rather than um, detrimental. But, you know, we'll We'll wait and see um, how how that plays out. Sure, Jason, you looked like you had a question. Jason's always got a question there. <laughs> this is what Jason. Oh, they they call they call him Seven Question Jason around here, but he goes he goes to eleven. It's so funny because that's my face when I'm not stepping on Joshua's toes or Nick's questions. So it's just oh, it's uh, <laughs> just put your hand up so he knows like, you want to go next. <laughs> Peekaboo. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have a, I have a question, as you've, as you've both figured out, and in listening to you describing what you're currently doing as distillery manager, it, it sounds like from when we saw Kilhoman when we, we talked about Jim Swan earlier and thinking about Jim Swan goes in as the consultant. What do you want to get out of this? But then Jim Swan doesn't become the distillery manager. Right, he, he goes on and does another consultancy gig. Here you are, consultant into distillery manager that I would imagine would roll ammo in your face to see how well this question's going over. And um, and not well, just for the listener at home. And so so you're gonna roll maturation into that. And so you you alluded to maturation earlier on. Do you have a guiding principle with maturation? Is there something that you think maturation can do that will dovetail with what you're doing in production of the spirit are you working with ollie on maturation to get to the final product 
what, what does maturation look like and what guides you when you're thinking about maturation? Yeah, mm. yeah, no, um, I think you t- touched on it there really and that's where um, working really closely with Ollie is, is going to be the key there. Um, you know, so I think traditionally in, in some of the larger um, companies, you hand over the casks, basically. You hand over the sort mm-hmm. of the maturation mm-hmm. sort of element and the to the master blenders. Sure. I, I don't think, you know, I think one of the things that drew me to, to joining the team with Elixir is that it's not going to be so in boxes, that we're all going to work together as mm. a team. And that's what really interests me about sort of expanding my knowledge as always is about. So, yeah, so... We, when we're creating what we're talking about in the flavour profiles that I talked about earlier on, a lot of that I'm speaking to Ollie and Sikinder about, I need to get out of your heads and out of your hearts what you want. But a lot of that, as you'll understand, is about Mm -hmm. the new make spirit profile. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, for me in the production, we're making the new make spirit profile. So, but we will also talk, you know, around um, what, what did the flavours that we want in the end product to be and then that leads us into the conversations around wood and cask and 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 how we we want to sort of approach that but really um that will be very aligned with what ollie is as as our master blender will um want from it as well so yeah it, it won't just be a handover um absolutely not i think we you know we're going to be putting some cask facility cask filling facilities um onto the site as well so we will be looking to make sure that we're doing that and, and doing some sort of wood um, management um, alongside that. And yes, there'll be long-term sort of aspirations of what those flavour profiles will be, and then the discussions about how we how we manage that wood and get that wood. Absolutely, I've come from a background of someone else did that for me, so that's you know <laughs> both daunting and um, exhilarating at the same time. That you know that that's another step that um, I'll get to you know play a part in um, and be involved in as we sort of have these ongoing sort of conversations about the flavour profiles that we're building. As someone who was involved so much in education, and, I'm, and and we've talked in this conversation about marketing and production and education, and there's there's a lot of talk in whiskey circles that, and I'm just talking about Isla as a as a whiskey producing island. I'm not identifying individual distilleries here, but we we talk about this Isla characteristic of PT and seaweedy and sometimes iodiney, but there's there's something of the sea about it. There's something of the Hebridean island about it. Some of the liquid is being matured whole cloth on the mainland when some is on the island. Why why is it why do you think it still has the qualities of the sea when aside from running through a still, it's never sat by the sea? It's something that absolutely bamboozles and amazes everyone in the industry. I don't think they've ever been able to define it, understand it, um, find traces of salt in whiskey, you know, any of these things. And I think, um, you know, there is over the years been um, many new articles and debates about terroir and, you know, all these things. And I'm not going to get into that because I was involved in a debate (laughs) many years ago about it. Um, But, you know, all you can see is, is that, you know, Scotland's an island. You, even in the central belt of Scotland, mm. you're not far away from getting to the coast. Mm. It's an incredibly small place. So, you know, let's let's just say that there's an overall maritime influence in Scotland. I think it's the easiest way to not get into some huge debate about, um, you know, 
uh, what people do or don't find. But I think, you know, sometimes it's quite nice not being able to put your finger on everything. You know, you can sit and write a, a chemical equation for alcohol yeah. and you can sit and write, you know, all, all you know, um, papers on what happens in fermentation and you know but sometimes it's quite nice just maybe not knowing maybe not understanding <laughs> that and and just leaving yes. it as a sort of uh, something that happens I think probably is you know I'm not one for sort of using just romantic tropes about whiskey I do like you know the transparency that we're now seeing in the industry I think a lot mm -hmm. of the new startup and independent guys um, and hopefully ourselves will be included in that are speaking to people in a language that they can understand it is no longer the PT whiskey rolling off the hills you know it's <laughs> it's it's much more than that yeah. so mm -hmm. so I think but I still there's still a little bit of me sometimes has that wee romantic bit about it that says you know what let's not push it too much and let's leave a little bit of a, a wee bit of mystique and, and mystery so I think that's that's one of the ones that I would do but looking out the window today where I cannot even see the bottom of the garden you know I can kind of see how even in production <laughs> a maritime flavour might get into the spirit because it is absolutely blowing a gale outside and pouring the rain and it's got all those elements and flavours that if you were standing you know anywhere on Isla with any PT Isla whiskey that, you know, that you taste that then when you go back home and, you know, six months later taste the same whiskey and it transports you back to Isla to that wet, windy, rainy day, you know. So let's yeah. let's allow us to continue to have the romantic bit about that and maybe not delve too far into, into um, salt and whiskey. <laughs> I like the thought of Nick Morgan's spidey sense tingling because you just said the word terroir out loud. Like Nick, Nick, Nick's not sure why he feels the way he feels right now, but he's got a certain... Yeah. He had his Obi-Wan moment. Somebody just said yeah. it Boy. somewhere. Just <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's funny when, as you were talking about that, I remember a conversation I was having with... Uh, James McTaggart over at, at Aaron. And, and this was, this was years on. And I had asked him, I said, you know, there, there's always this lovely sort of delicate briny note in, in your whiskey that I, that I really like. And, and I, I'm curious as the distillery manager, where's that coming from? You've got your finger on the pulse. And he said, he said, you know, our marketing department would tell you that it's, you know, we're on the coast and there's ocean water lapping up against the, the warehouse and it's the sea breeze. I could tell you that it's all just a load of pitch. I just know it's in there and I like it. Absolutely. And I, and I love it, right? That's just like, sometimes you don't need to yeah. know. Sometimes it's okay that it's just there. I think sometimes, well, um, and don't get me wrong, I'm enough of a, a whiskey geek myself, but I think you'll also find that a lot of us who work in whiskey day to day are not as geeky as some of the guys that are just sort of really mm -hmm. into whiskey. So we don't actually feel we have to know everything and understand it. But I remember years ago taking some people around Talisker Distillery and um, for some reason they wanted, we were walking past um, from the warehouse to... I don't know if we were sort of heading around the site and the boiler house was right sort of there and they were like, can we have a look in the boiler house? And I was like, yeah, if you want to have a look in the boiler house, I don't know why you'd want to look in the boiler house. And um, we have to treat the water that goes into the boiler with salt. Um, 
and um, and oh. that's just something that we do in process. And so there's bags and bags of salt all on a pallet <laughs> piled up in the boiler house. And I think they were absolutely convinced that we were putting. They, they were like, "Is that the salt that you put in the washbacks to get the salty flavour?" And I was like, "Absolutely, <laughs> we do not put salt in the washbacks." <laughs> so yeah, I think they were convinced. Oh. That's, Oh, you're leaving <laughs> yeah, your trade yeah. secrets everywhere. Just bags of salt. Of salt. House, that's it. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah, a little information can be a very dangerous thing, right? I couldn't agree more with you. <laughs> so, Jason, should we should we get us out of here? How about you get us out of here on our on our final question? Well, one of the things that we that we love to ask people, and especially in a pandemic time, is as you cast your eye over the next six months to 12 months, what are you most excited excited about? What's the thing that gets you jumping out of bed in the morning to get you over to your laptop? <laughs> and maybe further afield yeah. as the pandemic lessens. Well, I, I think as um, you've learned in this uh, short time that we've been together, I'll certainly not tell you one thing. <laughs> If you can say something in 50 <laughs> words instead of Good. five words, saying 50 words is always my motto. So, um, Go work- for it. <laughs> I knew I liked you. <laughs> so work-wise, I think it's it's pretty obvious. You know, we're building a distillery. What's not to love? I mean, super exciting time for us. We're still doing design work. You know, the next stages for me is going through that process of looking at, you know, pumps and valves and the, the not glamour side of it, um, but we're still we're still looking at sort of some of the the sort of basic design stuff, which is really really interesting. And myself and Ollie and and Raj Beer and the engineering team um, and our civils guys, you know, we we have weekly meetings where we're going through all the sort of stuff that we still need to cover off to build the distillery. Um, and you know, there's just there's just so much um, to do there that's really really interesting and and to think about sort of what we're going to have in in a couple of years time Mm -hmm. from a personal point of view just getting off the island might be quite nice (laughs) (laughs) since since um since february 2019 i was away i went to a couple of gigs i went to see a band called pete and diesel uh who are from the western isles with some friends in glasgow at the barlands brilliant gig a few of us went to poland then for a few days came back went to some other gigs and um, and early um, early in the year, there's a big festival called Celtic Connections in Glasgow, which is fantastic, and a lot of yeah. Americana bands and you know people people from all over the world that um, are influenced or their music is influenced um, by Scottish music. So we we did that, and then we have literally been in lockdown um, ever since then. I have been to London once to meet with um, Sikinder and Ollie and the guys down there about a month or so ago. Um, and I don't have any plans really to leave to leave Isla until the new year now, sort of hunker down um, for the winter. The, the freezer is full, um, you know, so so we should we should be good to get through the winter. But I think one of the things um, that I'm super excited about is getting to go around all the new distilleries. I am just unbelievably mm. excited mm-hmm. to do that. And I think one yeah. of the nice things yeah. that I've managed to do um, although it's been in the line of work, but it's felt like it's been for myself, has been catching up with people, you know, because we are looking for advice and, and friendly help and the industry is such an amazing place. And also it is littered with 
people that I've worked with previously as well. <laughs> so I have been having the most amazing conversations with um, guys who previously worked in Diageo or, or other um, sort of um, areas of the business that I know them from. And I'm asking them about, you know, what are you guys doing with new technology? What are you doing with new processes? Where are we as an industry with sustainability? What do we think the future fuels and energy sources are going to be? You know, and, and really sort of spending a lot of time talking to, to people. And it has been absolutely a pleasure getting back in touch with people again and, and sort of, you know, trying yeah. to sort of build up that network that, that we will need. And I, I, there is there is a genuine network of people in the whiskey industry in Scotland and they are more than happy to help each other. And, you know, I'm lucky that a lot of the contractors that I know that we're going to end up using in the project are people that I've worked with before as well. And people are always really happy to, to give advice and lend a hand. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, out with the, the sort of... Um, you know, everything when you work for a big industry, a big company is all there for you. There is an engineering department, there is a process support mm. department, there is a maturation department, there is. And yeah. so it's mm. sort of getting out there and talking to people. But a lot of these people I already, um, you know, are really good friends with and, and sort of um, getting back in touch with them and setting plans in place to go and visit them next year. That is that is absolutely, you know, buying buying new whiskies, tasting new whiskies, thinking to myself, how did they do that? You know, and, and, uh -huh. and having those conversations yeah. and then getting to a place where I'm hoping, you know, um, early next year, springtime, I'm going to do a huge tour of Scotland, you know, and go and visit all these people and say thanks to them, go and see all the new distilleries that have started up and, and sort of making sure that we're part of that industry and that network of people that are out there. Um, you know, we might not have a distillery yet, but we're going to have one really soon, you know, and, and I think it's really important that that we sort of, um, you know, put ourselves out there. Yeah, Elixir Distillers have, you know, been um, an independent bottler for, for quite some time, but we're, we're moving into a different place now and it's it's really good to, to have that network. And, you know, we're, we're just really interested in what other people are doing as well, you know, and, and um, you know, just sort of, taking that in as part of our own education and is experience that, that we have and, and, and wanting to sort of share that with other people as well. So, yeah, that's that's what I want to do is a massive tour um, of distilleries. <laughs> Sounds brilliant. Yeah, I'm so excited about it. And it's great because I'm tasting whiskies, new whiskies all the time and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm definitely going to go and see them. So I'm sort of starting, starting this list. I'll get a map on the wall soon enough and I'll start sort of thinking about my road trip. And I've already had some friends that are going to be like, can I join you for that bit? Or, you know, are you going to go to that distillery? So. Oh, Love so yeah, it. so I think we'll probably do some sort of oh, freedom, <laughs> some sort of freedom tour. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Freedom! <laughs> Go out and about. Driving through the trossacks. Freedom! See people, you know? It's lovely. I've, I've had amazing conversations and Zoom calls and phone calls with, you know, old friends and people in the industry. And, you know, I when the pandemic was, you know, very early on, we were all going on to tastings and, you know, you were still getting mm -hmm. to see people. It was lovely, mm -hmm. but it's not the same. So it'll be, it'll be, it'll be really nice to, to sort of go out and, and do that again. Well, I, I hope the day's here sooner rather than later, but yeah. having that on your calendar will give you something to look forward to during the darker months. Yeah. I would say the windier and wetter months, but it is Isla. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That, that, yeah, it's not uh, just just the winter. That's that. But you know, as as I go though through the winter, I will 
persevere with tasting new whiskies just so I can keep building that list. Good of on you. To go to. Good on you. It's, it's the hard work, but, but I'm glad you're up for yeah, it. Absolutely. To make up for all the spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll need to get shelves like you guys have got so that when uh, when I've had enough of writing those uh, risk assessments, I can just uh, have a little tipple to get to get me through the afternoon. That's it. That's it. We lie down with a wee dram. When Ollie brings you around to the U.S., you make sure you say, "Make sure we hit Guilford, Connecticut, which is the most important whiskey market in in all of the United States." <laughs> I'm writing that down, down, Joshua. I'm actually yeah. writing that down so I can add it to my yeah. list. He's he's coming up here. To, um, I'm, Ollie's coming up in a couple of days' time, and I've got you know um, a lot of time with him next week. So I'm just going to make sure that that comes up. Yeah, in, a, in fact, I'll go and add it to the to the agenda for the for the visit. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thank you. <laughs> uh, this, this has been uh, brilliant. Thank you so much. Really fun. Good. Yeah, this is, this is how people described you to us and well, what a lot of fun. I, I could see us having a good dram on Isla of an evening and sharing a few stories. That's fine. Well, I'll keep some of that um, mouse nibbled Lagavulin for you <laughs> and, um, and hopefully we'll have some new spirit as well from from our distillery as well for the next time that you guys are hopefully uh, coming across if oh. it's not sooner than that oh yes yeah. oh early early next year we're coming on your tour with you it's gonna be a fun <laughs> perfect <laughs> could, could do like a convoy system it will be absolutely brilliant <laughs> right, we can perfect. all have um a, what would your um what would your name be if you were on a convoy that's what you need to think about before you come across next so year I, i'm already jason three names so i'd be three <laughs> names for the convoy yeah, and I'm the whiskey cherub, so so there you go. The whiskey cherub. Well, whiskey whippet these days, I think. Whiskey whippet. He's now the whiskey whippet, but he used to be the whiskey cherub. Very good. Well, there we go. Well, that's See? it. I'll have to have a think about mine. I'm not really sure. I was going to say we don't know yours it yet. Sounds, it sounds like you said a lot of people spoke about me before you before we did this. So maybe you would be better to use some of those descriptions. To, or is that? It's too long a descriptor. Yeah. It's too long. Yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thanks again, Georgie. You're very welcome. And it was lovely speaking to you guys. You got us into the interview asking me what my takeaway was. What was your big takeaway from the conversation? Obviously, that Georgie Crawford is really cool. <laughs> and somebody we could dram with really easily. Mm-hmm. But on the more professional side of things, the Elixir Distillers project is in incredibly safe hands. I really liked hearing her talk about the fact that this is going to be a three-floor distillery. They're going to have their own maltings. And yes... She's managed a distillery before, but now she's got this added wrinkle of managing a distillery that is going to have its own maltings. Yeah. And yep. and and I think that that, that is going to be really uh, a really interesting wrinkle to the overall production. It's it's a larger project than than she's dealt with previously and given her time at some of the other distilleries that that she's had prior to Lagavulin. And if there's any one person that's, that is 
qualified for this job. It's it, it is definitely Georgie. And the things that she's going to have to learn on the job, I think she's going to have a blast learning on the job. And then she'll be a mentor to to people, you know, to the generations behind her. So so yeah, I'm just I'm excited for her. I'm excited for our friends Ollie and Sukinder and and the rest of the team yep. at Elixir and, and you know, rewinding the clock back to 2005, and there was that excitement of, look at what Kilhoman's going to be doing. And then you rewind the clock back to 2016 and 17 and 18, and you see what Ardenaho is doing. And now we get to watch it again, where you see this birth of a distillery. Um, and, and that's all exciting. And I, I talk about this all of the time in tastings, where... You know, maybe I'm pouring a, um, a single malt of Scotland and say, you know, here's a Glen Murray. That distillery is built in 1897. We didn't have the luxury of being excited about that distillery's <laughs> birth and following its growth. But yet here are three examples on Isla where we can say we, we have been around to watch that distillery's build and watch them evolve as a distillery. And that is just exciting. It's exciting to me, and I'm excited to see Georgie shape that that growth with this new distillery. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said there, right down to we're living history. And one of the things we've been saying for, you know, for a couple of months now about this burgeoning American single malt whiskey category mm. here we yeah. are living history and um, when you were out on your recent trip that we discussed in the beginning here last week i got to revisit our friends at virginia distillery company yeah. yep. here we are with a distillery that's what 2015 uh for that for the beginnings of that and you're just in the beginning of a movement the beginning of a distillery you get to see things up close that mm -hmm. 100 years from now, 150 years ago, will be past history. We're living it right now. It's very exciting. Really wonderful. Yeah, yeah. It, it's nice to be on the sidelines and, and in some cases be, be a small part of that too, that history. Um, you know, again, thinking you back to... Kilhoman and, and and us being able to bottle a cast from them. There's a little bit of history there. It's nice to not just be on the sidelines, but to have uh, our toes dipped into to some of that history. On a just remember, there are no small parts, only small people. Oh, I thought you were say small penises. Always the penis with you. We've been saying it for a while now, but US retail release number eight is here, making its way around stores. Go search it out. Elijah's been doing his best to get eyeballs on it, get taste buds on it. Off to a tremendous start. Jess has been busy with ROW number three. Same thing, trying to get it out to stores. She talked about it hopefully being in the UK by the end of November. Okay. Still on course with that. Good. Uh, other markets are dealing with 
global logistics to get it there. Jess is doing her best. The Single Gas Nation Online, we sold four casks. We've still got some Beanley and some Crofting Gear on the website. We never get to see How it. How is that? Right? How is that even <laughs> right? possible? But yeah, hey, well, hey ho. limiting it to one bottle per person really helps control sales. Um, yeah, there's, you know, here we are in the busy OND, and we're saying, nope, just one bottle for you. No, nope, just one bottle for you. And so let everybody get a chance. Uh, we are about to circle back there once shipping gets started proper. We'll circle back to to some rebuys on that. Allow people to do that. But it's exciting to be able to say there's there's a couple of bottles in the store. But then the reason that I wanted to actually bring up any of this in the news segment mm-hmm. is because Elijah and I were having a, a text conversation the other day. And I think this is worth bringing up. You and I have talked about this on the podcast, that it's it's a transparent industry podcast. We talk about the company. We talk about the business. Mm-hmm. Really good point comes up here. So we have released and I'm opening the text exchange here, we have released what we've internally called Wolf Island. Yes. It's the Water of Life film collaborative island single malt. Mm-hmm. And and Elijah messaged me the other day and it said, I've got a store owner asking how they should list this bottling. Hmm. Okay. And as much as we refer to it internally as Wolf Island, there's nothing on the label that says anything Wolf Island. In fact, there's a sheep on the label, right? (laughs) With this wonderful boom mic above it. I I absolutely love, love, love the label. But we've never once called it Sheep Island. We've called it Wolf Island. Mm -hmm. In the back of my head, I've enjoyed the idea of a wolf in, in sheep's, sheep's clothing. clothing. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So that that's kind of what I've been riffing off. Same. But um right. So <laughs> so Elijah is asking, okay, where do we go with this? What's what's the name of this bottle? And so I texted him and I said, here's the name of this bottle. Single cask nation. Water of Life Film Collaborative Undisclosed Island Small Batch. That's the name of this bottle. <laughs> that's the name of it. That's that's what it is, right? But, 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 uh-huh. why not use SCN Wolf Collaboration in shorthand, right? Huh. Right? And so as, as much as it pains me to move away from Wolf Island and and the imagery that that casts. I think if consumers are looking for it Mm -hmm. and we've got 1,600 bottles going to retail stores across the United States, if you are a consumer who is looking for it, you're going to want to look for SCN Wolf Collaboration. Uh, Agreed. Agreed. However, if that doesn't work, then ask for Wolf Island. And the reason I say this is, <laughs> we had you and I, uh, you know, and and Jess and, and Elijah from the beginning have been calling it Wolf Island, and so has Impex and our 
uh, our you know POS or point of sale material, our you know our sales sheets call it Wolf Island, and so I think that this is a term that has caught on. So caught on with some, maybe caught on with many. So try the single cast nation Wolf Collaborative bottling, and if that doesn't work, try Wolf Island. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a really good point. Um, <laughs> and so, so how does one get around it? So that, that's right. So here's the here's the honest part of this, right? When it comes to Ardbeg Black with what three A's in the black, mm-hmm. I. I, I hate that. I hate that name. And so much better than and, three Ks, though. I mean, can we agree on that? A hundred percent. I'm on board. <laughs> but whenever you enter it into a search engine, you have to get the correct number of A's to get a result to come up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's. It's got a name, but boy, does that confuse things. Then it got me thinking. Right. Uh, well, there's then the Ardbeg, which was. The pilot release for Mickey Heads leaving Ardbeg and ultimately retiring. But that, I think, had seven R's in it. And you had to spell it with all the R's to get results on it. And then, you know, whether Billy, you know, the, you know Dr. Bill Lumsden, likes it or not, Scorch, you know how to spell it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how many letters are in it and all the right number of letters. Scorch. Boom, you just get. Yeah, but you and have so, to set your computer on fire to get the proper, <laughs> you have to set, oh, that one. <laughs> so there's so there's value in a name. And so yeah. I know that, that Elijah, in terms of going into retail and connecting consumers with retailers, there's value in names. And, and we've always relied on well, we're single cast nation and we've had a distillery name or we've had undisclosed Isla, which has posed its own problems as well. But oh, yeah. Yeah. here here we are with this big collaborative project that we're now kind of, oh yeah, how do we how do we communicate that? And maybe it would have been as easy as putting Wolf Island on the label uh, as we were busy using it internally. So we should have listed on the label what we've been calling it from the beginning. Is that what you're saying? Radical notion. Radical <laughs> notion. Uh, well, yeah. I tell so, you what, though. Yeah, go ahead. Fantastic bottling. It's it's going over so well. I have had people come up to me or reach out to me on Facebook saying, I saw Elijah at the Whiskey and Barrel Night in L.A., holy crap, is that Wolf Island bottling good? Or holy crap, was that Sheep Label bottling good? <laughs> and, you know, the, the the general consensus is the vino seal that's on top, you know, everybody calls it a glass cork, but, you know, they're saying <laughs> the bottle doesn't seem to hold the glass cork very well, meaning you don't put the cork back on because you're too busy pouring it and pouring it for your friends and just having a good time. And we, you know, we talk about this, you know, there's some whiskeys that are session whiskeys where you bring friends over, you you pour it for everybody on, on the Friday and you have them over again, maybe. And, and by the Monday you're recycling the bottle because it's just a, a sharing whiskey. Well, and that was something that you and I clearly discussed internally, we may very well have brought it up on this podcast. I know that I brought it up with Greg on his podcast, uh, Big Man We Dram, 
But in the idea of putting that together, when you're collaborating with a film, Mm -hmm. you know you're going to get lovers of a film coming out in search of this bottling, Mm -hmm. reaching for this, asking for it in a store. And the question at that point becomes, when they open it, what's their experience? What are they getting here? And so the fact that it worked so well at Mm 48.8, a strength that we have never done before. It's not a cask strength product or project. What does that do for flavor? What does that do for accessibility? What does it do for drinkability? And I think it becomes a very sessionable dram that if you're sitting sitting watching the Water of Life film, you can pour one, maybe two. Well, the movie's still going. Why not a third? Right? <laughs> so long as you're home and, or you have an Uber. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag, please drink a full bottle responsibly. And so it, so it, so it really does become, for yeah. me, that, that experience and that quality of spirit and what it says about the collaboration with Greg and Trevor and Alphonse and the team. Like it's, there's so much wrapped up in it. And I want the consumer to enjoy all aspects of that. And I'm really overjoyed that early reports are people are doing just that, discovering just that. Yep. Yeah, they're, they're absolutely loving it. So that's very encouraging. And uh, yeah. Yes, I'll have to say about that one. Was there any other news we needed to cover? I was going to ask you, given that you've been out and about and doing some single cast nation tastings in retail stores, and you mentioned earlier doing warehouse liquors, anything catch your eye in our own kind of retail out and about in the world? People cannot seem to get enough of our 10-year-old Blair Athol, the, the second Phil PX. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's been one of these whiskeys where people have even said, and I lo- I loved this so much. It's not everybody knows Blair Athol, but they knows they know Rosebank, and people have said that this this has the delicate quality uh, that I think of when I've had some some Rosebanks, you know, earlier on. But then there's the heft from the sherry cask. Mm-hmm. And and their point was, this is such a well composed whiskey. It's so balanced. It's for a ten year old whiskey, and and I, you know, that's one bit I usually don't like hearing. Like, you know, for a such yeah. and such age, yeah, you know, what, what, yeah, whatever. I've never been a fan either. Yeah, but you know, the, their their point is, it's doing a lot of things. It's ticking a lot of boxes, and normally. You'd need a master blender to to create this wonderfully balanced whiskey that's 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 both light and heavy and unctuous and crisp and you know, and and they're just they're falling in love with it and and so that's that's been a takeaway for me. Um, the of course I'm with the M and H guys, so we're talking about the SCN M and H bottlings, and, and those have been um, that's or I'm sorry, that's been well received. And there's one other one, our Linkwood. Oh my gosh. It's when people start coming to me and pitching a line to me, 
that I've never pitched to them before, but it's my line. You know, we're, mm. we're, we're, you know, our thing about our Linkwood was that if you taste a Linkwood from Gordon McPhail or you taste it through Flora and Fauna or, or any other independent bottler, they're highlighting how great that whiskey is in an active cask. Mm-hmm. And we're highlighting how great the whiskey is in an inactive cask. So you could see the the fruity side of Linkwood. And, and their point is, I've never tasted a Linkwood like this. I've never ex- had the chance to experience Linkwood in this way. And people are saying, thank you. That is cool. That's wonderful to hear. Ah, the Linkwood love and the Blair Athol love, and, and not to speak out of school, but I'm watching the calendar. You and I are closing in on a recording of our year in review. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about right. some bottlings that we will be discussing in that episode and I'm very happy to hear what you're saying right now. I'll throw this on the end of the news segment here is Elijah just did a banter about the barrel with Patrick from the wine exchange. Oh, wine exchange, yeah. They have the first publicly released Single cask nation blended scotch, single cask. The Terence, yeah. So if you're looking for something exciting, look them up. They do not ship outside the state of California, but I'm sure you've got friends in California. I'm positive. And then as we talk Linkwood, Grombeck up at Barrel Thief in Seattle, who has a banter about the barrel with Elijah as well, talks about his Linkwood selection and what he's selling just at Barrel Thief. That's well searching out as well. That's well worth searching out (laughs) as well. And again, he's not shipping uh, anywhere really, but I'm sure you've got friends in Seattle. I'm positive. I know you. You do. Yeah. Yes, you. You're good You in the car. You've got a friend in Seattle. You got a friend in, in Seattle. Seattle. So anyway, yeah. there you go. That's that's the new. Tons of things. You know, we've spent so many months watching this global supply chain and how we're going to get everything out of Scotland and, you know, even even into England for crying out loud and, and across into Europe and over into the US and Canada. You know, the support in Canada is absolutely off the chain right now. Like, it's brilliant seeing so much movement on so many projects we've been sitting on for for a couple of months and a few months in some cases. Mm-hmm. So, ah, and and where is our mind? It's sitting in 2022, oh. <laughs> working out. What does the first week of January look like? What does the rest of January look like? What does February look like? It never ends. It's always go, go, go. That, it's funny you're talking about January and February. I've all I'm thinking about is next October, November, December, because there are big <laughs> things happening. Or there are the big things that need to happen, and there's so many things that we need to be doing to ensure that these big things happen towards the end of next year. 100%. Well, I am, I am shuffling the papers on my desk, and I'm proud to say this has been the news. Out of the frying pan and into the fire, Jason, we're leaving news... And now we're going we're gonna to go to emails. And actually, 
just so you're aware, Jason, and just so our listeners are aware, we're going to start putting a pause on emails because we're, we're now in the mode of collecting emails for our annual mailbag episode, which is going to happen sometime in February. And I understand it's the middle of November, but we all know February is <laughs> going to come friggin' quick. How did we just close out the news segment? Our minds are in 2022. <laughs> We're in February 2022. <laughs> you got to plan this far ahead if it's going to work at the right time. So yeah, you're spot on. We, yeah. yep. We're looking yeah. at the mailbag episode somewhere around Valentine's Day, uh, 2022. So what I'm about to read actually didn't come in in email. This was an Instagram message, and this came from a, a listener that our listeners have, have heard before, Balancer, a.k.a. Anthony Riviera. Or should I say Indeed. Anthony Riviera, a.k.a. Balancer. Isn't it Rivera? Anthony Rivera. Yeah, you're saying Riviera. I said Rivera. You said Riviera three you times. You said Riviera. <laughs> I don't know what's happening right now, but if you could pronounce it correctly, we'll continue. All right. Uh, Anthony, I apologize if I said Riviera. I meant Rivera. Uh, Bal- <laughs> we know you by balancer, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. I, I, only, I only call him the French for short. The French. Oh, the French Riviera. <laughs> <laughs> So he sent uh, an Instagram, an Instagrammatical message, and uh, speaking of grammatical, um, and he, he says, he says, I don't know if you get requests for the podcast, but you are now. Oh. oh. I'm curious if you and Jason have sampled any single malt finished in a tequila cask. I don't <laughs> see it being complimentary in any way to single malt, but I do trust both your palates. As you may have assumed, I'm not a tequila fan. I am, though, interested in things that are new to me in the world of whiskey. I've not seen any tequila-finished whiskey on the shelves yet. I was hoping you could briefly discuss tequila cask in the beginning or the end of a podcast. Curious on who's experimenting with these casks. Do you like it? What's in the future? Popular or a dud? When can we see major brands having these on the shelves. I've seen a few in publications, but none on a shelf. Mm. And, you know, I know I can think instantly of a release you and I have had, and that was from Westland. That was their their celebration, or celebrious. That was it. It was their celebrious cask. Do you remember with their April Fool's? Yeah. Uh, and that was finished in a tequila cask. Certainly worked. I, I do you remember their other April Fools where they released Tequila? Uh, yeah, yeah, but that wasn't that an agave spirit. That was an actual agave spirit. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, no, I did. I just that jumped to mind. But yeah, the the celebrities, and then of course, Kilhoman comes to mind. They've they've done the mezcal cask that was released. Tequila Have cask they... is coming. Okay, it's coming. That's that was my follow up. Thank you. And let me let me add on to that, right? Because I've been on the tasting panel to some of these single casks coming into the U.S. from Kilhoman, and I'm gonna tell you a little story that I found somewhat intriguing. So 
there was a mezcal cast that came in, and, and I'm going to lump mezcal and tequila into the same category because, you know, tequila is basically a subset of mezcal, right? It's an agave spirit, so so let's lump it in together. Why not? So when we got the sam- the initial samples, we got a few tequila cask ones and a few mezcal cask ones, and I didn't particularly love the tequila cast. I didn't dislike them, but I, I thought the mezcal ones had the whiskey coming to it into its own a bit more. And the one that we approved, I remember really liking a lot. And I said, but it seems to kind of take the whiskey out of the realm of what Kilhoman is, like, or, or the things that I love about Kilhoman. I still like it but it doesn't seem like a very Kilhomany Kilhoman. But here's the interesting thing. That cask was maybe bottled a month, maybe two months after the selection. And I recently tasted it while I was in Chicago. And I've got to tell you, that's one of the finer Kilhoman single casks I've had in Hmm. a while. All of a sudden, Kilhoman came back. And what the mezcal was doing, rather than confusing the palate with a different type of smoke what it seemed to do was amplify or add this wonderful orchard fruit note it was all red apples on the Mm. palate but it was red apples with what we like about Kilhoman with that you know white chocolate fattiness and and some of that citrus and some of the floral notes going on and so it makes me think that it could work you know, from from the standpoint of, and we've talked about this before, aging not being linear, right? Hundred percent. It's, it's, it's not going to go from not great to getting better to great. It's going to go from maybe that's great to not being great to being okay to being great. Yep. It's it's going to go up and down. Yep. And so I don't think that we can discount necessarily any one cask, but I think whether it's Kilhoman whether it's Westland, whether it's Diageo, I think you're going to see Diageo releasing a fair bit of tequila-matured whiskey because they own tequila distilleries. I think, (laughs) you know, I think similar to us experiencing the evolution of a distillery and seeing how their whiskeys progress, we're going to see the evolution of whiskeys being matured in tequila casks and mezcal casks and seeing, you know, where the sweet spot is for that. And, you know, my, my guess is we understand what a sherry cask finish does. We understand what full maturation sherry does. We understand what a Madeira finish and full, full Madeira maturation does. We're only now learning what a tequila finish can do or what a mezcal finish can do. And it's just going to be us watching that evolution and getting an understanding of what's going to be best for that distillate. Do you think, given the way you start talking about Kilhoman there, do you think it needs to be smoke in the spirit to work with smoke in the, the mezcal? Or do you think there might be room for a non smoked spirit to grow within the smoke of the mezcal? Would that be something you'd be paying attention to as we go on this journey? 
Oh, 100%. So, so this, this, was, this was one of my concerns with that Kilhome and Mescal cask. Initially, I was concerned that the, peat, the peatiness was fighting with the smokiness, that the two weren't, they weren't gelling. They were both present. And, and I thought that was fun. Like, I knew I would open my wallet for it, right? And, and that's, that is the final test to selecting a cask. <laughs> Am I going to open my wallet for it? So I knew that I was going to do that. But I thought people would be having a conversation about perhaps the peat fighting with or being side by side with the smoke from the mescal cask. And in the end, the two, the two really gelled in, in an absolutely beautiful way. I think a non-peated spirit in a mescal cask can be as wonderful as, you know, what Pandaren is doing for their Celt and peated or what Balveni does with their peated cask. You know, you're going to see that, that smoke being put upon the malt in a complimentary way. It's a matter of, you know, what, what's the Goldilocks zone for, you know, harvesting that cask for bottling. And I, I just think it's going to be a bit of a learning curve. But to bring this answer full circle here, it's interesting that you led with Celebrius from Westland with the tequila finishing on that April Fool's release that they always have a lot of fun with. Mm-hmm. But you're seeing... Diageo and Chivas and Doers using tequila finishing and cask uh, and mezcal cask finishing in blended products, and it's always interesting for me when I when I hear this question, my mind immediately goes to single casks. Who's putting out the single casks <laughs> and what's happening with the mezcal and the tequila in that instance? But the thought that this could come back to blending. And some finishing going on there, an additional little note. As a blender, you're always just looking for what additional notes can you introduce to the experience? Yeah, I, I mean, there, there are really three ways you can look at this. You can look at it as single casks. You can look at it as a general single malt release. Or you can look at it from a blended perspective. Right. It, it's I think blenders, whether you're doers or you're Johnny Walker or or you're Chivas, you have the freedom to create something that that allows you to to take you out of your standard flavor profile because you already have things to delineate that. Right. Your Johnny Red is going to taste one way. Your Johnny Black is going to taste another way. And in the story goes on and. So you don't need to say, here's Johnny Black with a tequila finish. You create a tequila-finished Johnny Walker. Yeah. That becomes its own thing. But when you apply it to a single malt, then that becomes different because you have a very specific distillery character that you are affecting. With a blend, you don't have a distillery character. You have different releases that are going to have different styles. Yeah, yeah. The the only thing I think they need to be careful of to bring this also back to the gentleman you were talking about earlier at your your kosher kosher festival there, they just have to be careful because I know that when you put whiskey 
into a tequila cask, it becomes tequila. So, you know, that's going to affect marketing, I think, and how that gets presented. But other than that, I think we're I think we're golden here. Oh, I wanted to ask him firstly, that was excellent. Secondly, I wanted to ask that was really good. Wonderful call. <laughs> I wanted to <laughs> I don't know if our listeners fully appreciate how effortless that callback was. Uh, but I wanted to ask this guy, like, okay, when you put wine into a cask, <laughs> does that become whiskey? <laughs> like, well, my concern is he would say yes. <laughs> that would be the concern there. That is my concern, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. This is this has been excellent. Balancer, thanks ever so much for the, the question. Joshua, I know you always like to to remind the listener how to reach out, but also with a focus on sending in an email for the mailbag episode. Right. So please do send us emails, especially with the mailbag episode in mind, because we're I, I really I want to have the best mailbag episode we've ever had. The best. That's the all. Best. That's how we measure ourselves. Has this latest one been the best? If the answer is no, we've failed. Then we failed. And, and like Jason, you had said in in our previous episode or the one before that, I, I, you know, who knows? You know, some point in the past. Ask us a whiskey question. Ask us a personal question. Ask us anything you would like, and we will likely answer it. And if we don't answer it, well, then we didn't. You crossed the line. Yeah. You, you crossed the line. Yeah. Over this line. line, you do not. Cr- yeah. And by the way, please, proper nomenclature. Yeah, just is, mark it down. Yeah, just mark it. <laughs> Over the line. Anyway, so um, so if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us. Questions at one nation under whiskey.com. That's our email address. Hey, if you want to reach out to us, info at singlecasknation.com. I guess you could do that too if you want. You could do what our friend uh, Anthony Riviera, Anthony the French Riviera. The French. uh, Just call him the French. Oh, there you go. You could do what the French does, what the French do, and just uh, Instagram us if you'd like. And you could reach out to us via Facebook. Send us a Facebook message like like Ian Bruce does and uh, the Pluralized Mares and, and some others. Uh, just go to the Facebook search bar, look for One Nation Under Whiskey, and you'll find us there. Just send us a message. and P.O. Box? Oh, yep. P.O. Box 335, Guilford, Connecticut, 06437. If you want to send us a postcard like Paul Marco has, uh, you could send us gifts like David Feldner did, uh, which kind. was wonderful, like Travis Williams did. Um, you know, still we, sits on my desk. Both yeah. both those chaps' gifts still sit on my desk, you know, dude, and I've I've still got. I know I don't have the hair for it anymore, but I've yeah. got uh, Vadim's wizard's hat. It's just down to my side here. It's uh, it's a bottle topper for me. I oh yeah, it. it it's sitting on top of one of my Aberlauer bottles. Listen, the only thing that we don't accept are uh, flaming bags of poop. So do not send no. flaming bags of poop no, to no. our PO box. That's how you lose a PO box. <laughs> but the 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 box is really oof, P-O. Oof. P-U. Oh, P-U. That's right. No one says P-O. It says P-U. P-O. Is that us? That's us, Jason. <laughs> Listeners, Jason, everybody, 
Thank you so much. It's been a blast. It's been a pleasure. Until the next time. <laughs> Speaking of Travis Williams, I will pick up his two Glen Cairns here. And I will say, cheers, Joshua. Cheers, listeners. Cheers, Travis Williams. It is exciting, but it's an interesting point, too, that you've got uh, Portellan that is about to open. I'm going to interrupt here. You sound like you're coming through your AirPod mic rather than your Rode. I should be coming through my AirPod mic rather okay. than my mode. That, my that mode. does make sense. Just your voice has completely changed. And are you sure you're coming through your AirPod and yeah, not through your... So, that just changed it. Well, so part of it is... I'm going to have some editing to do because I've got a vacuum cleaner going going on downstairs. <laughs> so I think I think that the vacuum alongside my voice is affecting how oh, you okay. come through. So hopefully on your AirPods. side it, it might nothing, not be. Nothing has changed. Yeah. So it's not coming through your laptop mic or anything like that? No, okay. no. Cool. Like I'm sorry I'm to interrupt your question. No, I'm going to take a drink while yeah. we're doing that. <laughs> Oh, that is a huge. I question. think you'll find it's my Metallica <laughs> glass. That's that's <laughs> all Metallica like glass of like. Yes, and beer for all. Oh, look at that. We went beer to see them a couple all. of years ago at Twickenham, and um, that was the reusable cups you could get for beer. And I was like, I'm taking this home with me. So we've got a collection of Metallica cups. I'm like, I'm oh yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm going to age myself. The last time I saw them was oh, 1991. You, you know what us wow. whiskey people are like? First time I saw we, them um, was We don't go anywhere and not expect to get a free glass at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what was I saying? Oh, right, yeah. So, 